0: Hello, everyone. What you're about to listen to is a re-airing of an old podcast uh, episode of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. My name is Robert Winfrey. You're about to hear from me a bit more as we get into the episode proper. This episode was the second in a series I did looking at professional wrestling heels. Everyone Loves a Bad Guy covered a lot of ground. And at the time, I was more a fan of professional wrestling than not, and my fandom with professional wrestling has waxed and waned over uh, a lot of big part of my life sometimes i'm very much into it sometimes i'm not it it comes and goes and i figured that any podcast especially with my group of friends and uh accomplices (laughs) collaborators uh wouldn't be complete without a discussion about professional wrestling heels uh so this episode was not the first the first episode focused specifically on the territory days it is not it does not yet have a re-air time but uh so you understand, I'm going to intro this a little bit in the episode proper, but this is not the first episode. This episode focuses on the rock and wrestling connection and boom of the then-WWF in the 80s. So we, uh, there's a lot of discussion about different professional wrestling personalities over that particular period of time. Again, focusing on the villains, focusing on the heels. With the exceptions of Rowdy Roddy Piper and Bobby the Brain Heenan. Now those might seem like big omissions to you, but they each got their own show. I don't know if they're going to be re-aired in the immediate future or not, but uh, suffice to say, for the moment, this is about everyone not one of those two guys. My guest for this particular episode is Steve Cook. He continues to write for both 411 Mania and places Like the Chair Shot. Uh, A good discussion was had here. We had a lot of fun, and I'm... uh, anxious to get you into it so uh, let's do the last couple of things before we get into that first up please do like comment subscribe share around the podcast any way that you can second i'd like to thank our sponsors first up we have amazon music uh professional wrestling uh, it's somewhat apropos that i get to talk about amazon music here because the connection between wrestling and rock and roll in the 80s was a big one It's one of the things that led to the WWF's boom. That's all been well documented. But if you would like to go back and listen to any of that music from that particular time period or whatnot, Amazon Music has an enormous library of streaming songs, and we are giving away a free 30 days of the Amazon Music Unlimited service. There's a link in the description below. It's getamazonmusic.com slash w2mnetwork. And you you will get a free 30 days of that particular subscription. It's a wonderful service. You can get movies. Not movies. That's Amazon movies. You can get music. You can get podcasts like this. Uh, feel free to give that a check. Just click the link. Fill out the little form they ask, saying who sent you. And begin your listening enjoyment. Our other sponsor is Grammarly. For you listeners of the W2M Network, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively, something we all could use help with. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes, while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M Network. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash W2M Network to download Grammarly for free if you don't want to type any of that into your search bar or whatnot. There is a link in the description of the podcast. Give that a click, and that will take you over to that particular function. All right, that's it for the plugs. Thank you again very much for listening. Throwing it to myself from 2014 was our original air date for this one, July 18th, to be more specific. All right, pass to me. Take it away. <laughs> Special touch. And thank you all so very much for joining us here this evening I know, you know, before I really get into this It turns out something like 50%, little over of the population of the United States Actively listen to podcasts And there's, I would assume at least 300,000 to choose from iTunes list somewhere around 250 And I, again, that's just the top for iTunes I imagine there's some rotations involved there It's just, I, I just imagine there's, we're looking at north of 300k And some of you have chosen mine, and I thank you so very much for it. I would encourage you to uh, tell a friend. If you have friends, you think they'd enjoy it, past episodes, all of this stuff is free, and I'm very happy to keep it that way. Now, I'm going to kill a little bit of time here. I have a special guest lined up, and he's trying to connect. Apparently, uh, I think it's either Blog Talk or Skype that's having some issues there. And uh, next time he pops up, I'll try to get him on. But 411 Luminary, a longtime contributor to the wrestling section there, Steve Cook is going to be joining us, conveniently enough, as we talk about professional wrestling's big boom in the early 80s. Uh, specifically, because I don't want to drum through a bunch of different federations and all that fun stuff, I'm, we're just going to be talking about the World Wrestling Federation on this podcast. And uh, I, was, I asked Steve, he said he'd be interested, so hopefully as soon as all that stuff gets worked out, he'll be on, he'll be ready to go, and we'll get moving on that one. Uh, my last show, I focused specifically on territories in the pre-boom days. I had Pat Mullen on, I had a lot of fun, uh, apparently a lot of you have enjoyed it. Alright, we're going to see if this connection is going to hold here. Uh, nope, seems not, he keeps cutting out. For those of you who don't know how the studio works, here, I have a list of, like, it's my switchboard, and he's popping up every now and then. I don't know if he's constantly cutting out or if it's Blog Talk screwing with us or what have you. It could be any of those, really. I mean, Blog Talk's a twitchy program. So the next time his thing pops up, I'm going to see if I can unmute him and get going before he gets cut off again, and we'll just see how that works. This is live, ladies and gentlemen, and this is some of the benefits of live radio. Things can go wrong. All right, uh, a little bit of backstory while we get this technical stuff figured out. Uh, early '80s, it's kind of ensconced in the. All right, hang on, here's Steve. Let me see if we got him here. All right, connecting. Come on. All right, Steve, are you there? No, seems not. I have no idea what is causing this. So I'm getting. We're going to try and get this sorted out again. I apologize, everybody. Um, but it's essentially a free service that <laughs> we're providing here. But in the mid, in the you know, starting into the 80s, Vince McMahon, uh, Vincent Kennedy McMahon, still r- owner of now World Wrestling Entertainment, decided that he would take his father's regional promotion and make it national. He was going to expand. He was going to compete. He was going to buy up talent. He was going to drive the other guys out of business. He was going to make himself an empire. He managed to do it, uh, very successful. But it started in the 80s, and that's kind of where we're going to start here with this one. All right, we're going to try this one more time here. All right, Steve, are you there?
1: That's me. We're going old school now. We're going to use the old school. Well, this old school as smartphone can be, really. You know, this old school as like a Verizon it can be.
0: Really I want I to get time. like a rotary phone and dial into this one of these times just so I can say I did it. That'd be nice. My
1: grandma used to have one. I don't, I'm don't. i sure it's flying around somewhere.
0: I get it.
1: That'd be cool time, but uh, glad to be here. It's a good time. I, I, you know the blog talk, this, this probably is on Friday night, nothing new. So, you know, I'm, I'm used to it. We, we were a punches here. It's
0: oh, all good. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I just uh, – I don't know how much you heard. I gave a brief synopsis of, you know, Vince McMahon wanted to make a professional wrestling empire, and he managed to do that successfully. But I wanted to – okay. First of all, uh, first, I, you and I mentioned this briefly in our talk on Twitter. I'll let everyone else know. There are two names that are going to be conspicuous by omission for essentially this podcast. Now, they might get mentioned, but by and large, we're not going to delve too deeply into Rowdy Roddy Piper or Bobby the Brain Heenan. The reason being, the next two weeks are going to be devoted specifically to those two guys, because I have people who are willing to talk about them for hours. So rather than try and shoehorn everything into this one little bit of time, I'll give those two guys, they each get their own podcast, and come back next couple of weeks for those. Yeah, future, future shows. <laughs> I can show early. Yeah. Really. So, minus those two, the WWF's expansion really kind of kick-started with Hulk Hogan. Hulkamania was the driving force behind the then WWF going from a regional northeastern promotion to global powerhouse. So, the first guy I want to mention, I, in a transitional role, a guy who had a lot of heat... And uh, bear in mind, if you didn't hear last time uh, our show last time, when I say he, I don't mean people booed him. I mean people wanted to physically harm this individual. And now, I mean, nowadays the Iron Sheik's kind of a meme because he's so crazy. But I mean, back in the day, he was a you know there was a lot of legitimacy about him about his skill set and about you know again people wanted him dead. Not just, and part of that was again the cultural differences between the You know, America and Iran at the time, which is where he's built from. So how was, you know, you're a fan of this era. What are some of the memories you have of, in particular, the Iron Sheik?
1: Uh, The Iron Sheik, uh, you know, like you said, a quintessential transitional champion because he was that bridge in between Bob Backlund being champion for five years and nobody ever beating him for the title and whatnot. And then finally, on December 1983, he puts Backlund and Cam Clutch in Madison Square Garden, makes him humble, wins the title. Everybody was shocked to see the Iron Sheik win the title. But it didn't last long for poor Sheiky baby because next month he's facing Hulk Hogan. And it's time for the next era. So the Hulk Hogan era began on the back of the Iron Sheik. And what better guy to begin the Hulk Hogan era than the Iron Sheik? The evil, the evil Iranian, you know, the big Iran hostage, hostage crisis, a big deal back in the early 80s. And uh, Iron Sheik, uh, you talk about how everybody hated him, how he would get, like, real-life legitimate heat. He didn't have to worry about, like, people trying to fight him or anything because he was, like, a legitimate tough guy. This guy was, he was, like, a wrestler in the 1968 Olympics, legitimately. He was a coach for U.S. in 1972 after he made transition over. When he came over to U.S., he trained under Vern Gagne. He began training guys at Vern Gagne's school. The guy was a legit tough guy. He would not want to screw with the Iron Sheep back in the day. And I still want to screw with the guy now because he seems like he's got a couple screws loose, you know. So,
0: well, now he's got insanity. You don't screw with a crazy guy.
1: No, even back in the day, Iron Sheik was a guy who could hold his own. He could have been one of those old-school NWA champions back in the day because you could take him to any promotion or whatever. And you try shooting Iron Sheik, it's not going to go well for you. And Sheik had a great 4 and heel gimmick, which you guys talked about on last week's show, and that uh, that was a traditional heat getter. It still is to this day, to
0: a certain extent. Iranian never... He so much heat, he got fired.
1: Yeah, yeah, and who knows what's going to happen with Rusev here coming up with uh, uh, things picking up with we mother Russia. But as it in may, Iron Sheik uh, come out, Iran number one, United States, uh he had the great Freddie Blasky in his corner for a long time. Blasky had, a love, just had some legitimacy there. Uh, his, and after he was done with Hulk Hogan, which, I mean, he would not going to beat Hulk Hogan, everybody knew that. But after that... Uh, yeah, a nice shoot of Sergeant Slaughter in uh, 1984. Like uh, They had some classic matches during that time period. Uh, the boot camp match in Madison Square Garden, uh, a few other matches. Uh, Slaughter was making the face turn at that point. Remember, Slaughter had been a heel for a while leading up to that. And then he saw Iron Sheik, and he just got tired of Iron Sheik hating on America. It's Sergeant Slaughter's country, for God's sakes. And Charlie's doing a Pledge of Allegiance. So basically, the Iron Sheik helped him build up two of your top classic America databases. Paul Kogan and Surgeon's Flyer, too.
0: Yeah, I, I, I saw, I don't remember where, it might have been on a, one of the old Legends roundtables that the WWE used to produce, it might have been on a YouTube clip somewhere. I saw the Sheik do this thing with the, with the Persian clubs. Yes, where he yes would... the Persian clubs. What the I looked at him doing that and I got tired just watching it. I mean, I don't know how heavy those things were but for anyone out there who's, go ahead, look it up if you've never seen it. And imagine doing that with something that weighs as much as those things. I mean, I don't know if they were legitimately as heavy as, you know, it's wrestling, so, you know, you add five or ten pounds to make it seem more impressive. But by the same token, even at just, like, 30 pounds, I mean, moving those things around, my, I don't know how you do I mean, that takes serious skill.
1: Uh, Yeah, Sheik was a skilled guy, a strong guy. He could back, back himself up as far as, you know, wrestling went, as far as strength went as well. A very legitimate competitor, and uh, he also had a tag team with Nikolai Volkov that uh, lasted for a while in the '80s, and they won the tag team titles at WrestleMania One. So Iron Sheik was a key figure in that as well. Even if he, even if he wasn't in the uh, team title scene, still he was a rung below, you know, Hogan and Piper, Orndorff, all those guys. But he was still in the middle of the card. He was still getting great heat with Volkov and with Blasi, and later on, of course, uh, the Slickster. And uh, definitely, he was a guy that. Did a lot of good things for WF in the mid-'80s. And then he he got in trouble a little bit later on. Were you you going to talk about how he got in trouble with Jim Duggan?
0: Sure, go ahead. Do you want to mention that? or (laughs) I'm (laughs) fine. That's a
1: funny instance.
0: Yeah, I know. I'm saying go
1: ahead. Yeah, the thing with Jim Duggan was it's kind of ironic because Iron Sheik was the classic heel, the classic bad guy and whatnot. And unfortunately, Iron Sheik had the mustache, the evil mustache. You can't forget (laughs) that, but... But then one night in New Jersey, he gets caught with uh, his rival at the time, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, in, in a car uh, doing drugs and whatnot. And the bad part, of course, wasn't that they're doing drugs because it's wrestling. Who cares about that? But you got a heel and a face driving together. They're fitted with each other. For God's sakes, man.
0: k lives.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently not. <laughs> uh, I heard but, about that. Uh, that was
0: crazy. I mean, uh, it's the 80s. No one cares that they're doing Coke. Everyone's doing that
1: no, in but, the '80s. Yeah, nobody. Yeah, everybody's doing that. There's not no big deal. But they're traveling together and they're feuding. I mean, Bill Watts would have probably killed one of them. I don't know which one, but just crazy off. stuff
0: there. <laughs> even if even gonna the cowboy him. wasn't going to shoot on the Sheik.
1: Yeah, probably not. Probably not. But uh, Sheik's also known for his. Uh, you can't say he's a very eloquent speaker by any means, but he certainly remembered his He <laughs> yeah, They definitely stood out among the pack. Uh, for being uh, bizarre,
0: if you will, a lot of the great ones that you know the memorable guys don't necessarily have the best promo in the world. I mean, the Warriors fondly remembered Hogan could get a bit uh, excited and a little bit verbose, so it makes sense that it would be on the heel side as well. And yeah,
1: but at least Hogan, the important Ward thing with the
0: Sheik was you care. <laughs> the Sheik did care. The
1: Sheik jumped yeah. out through the screen at you, which a lot of these guys, especially in the eighties, and there's been, there's been speculations of why and why not, whether it's because there's scripts now and because the world has changed in a lot of different ways and whatever. But definitely in this era, the guys, the personalities jumped out through the screen at you. Whether you knew that, I mean, we're not going to sit here and say, oh, everybody knew that wrestling was uh, was real and legit and whatnot. You still want to go out and see the Iron Chica's butt. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I mean, well, you know, even if even if you know it's a show, that doesn't necessarily diminish your emotional response to it. You might still go, "I hate that guy. I hate what he's saying. I wish for Hulk Hogan to crush him." And that formula yeah. works pretty well.
1: It, it worked pretty well for a pretty long time. The Irish Chief still, uh, for years, made a living off his character. And and when that stopped he he's making a living doing doing other stuff now. God bless him. And
0: I don't know They're how much
1: is his percent of now is a work or a shoot or whatever, but. Whoever
0: it is, it seems to work for him. You know, he's out there entertaining people. And you know what? You can't fault the guy. <laughs> if, he's, if you're paying to see him, he's going to give you something. As long
1: as he's not you know, doing anything illegal, you know?
0: That's yeah. Like... All right, moving on to another one of the top heels. <sighs> okay, you might have to correct me here, but I don't ever recall the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase being a good guy. Did he ever um... have a face run in the World Wrestling Federation?
1: Yeah, not, not in that persona. No, not not as the million-dollar man said to Biasi in World Wrestling Federation. Um, in Mid-South Wrestling, he had a, a face run briefly there. He had some face runs early on in territory days, like in Georgia, places like that, When he's like a fresh-faced uh, young kid working his way up the ladder. I mean, now back in the time when he was, like, working Georgia, there's a chance where he, he was in consideration being an NWA champion, and that never happened for one reason or another, but... You know, he did, a lot, he did some face work back early in his career, but definitely later on, for most of his Mid-South run, certainly in his WWF run, he was definitely cut out more to be the bad guy. And the Million Dollar Man was uh, the quintessential, um, you know, he was the 80s guy. This is personality going around, 1980s, guys like Donald Trump and all the all the billionaires run around out there, you know. Greed is good. That was the catchphrase of the 1980s. Everybody was, you know, that was what people were seeing everywhere. And DiBiase, he played that role of, you know, the guy with all the money that looked down on everybody. And that's kind of a role that's great for wrestling because wrestling tends to uh, attract an audience that's not made up of uh, millionaires and billionaires. It's a lot of guys that are, uh, you know, working nine to five, just trying to get by, trying to put food on the plate of their loved ones. You know, guys, sons of the plumbers, like the Dusty Rhodes of the world, if you will, daddy. At DiBiase, he played a character that was nothing like most of his people. Yeah. He he was like those people's boss, you know? He was the guy that uh, he would have these people work for him, and they would think about how much they hate the people that have more money than they do, and that made him the classic heel character. And uh, this was the character, of course, that when Vince McMahon conceived it, it was a character that Vince himself always wants to play. When, when he came What's up with the idea, he basically said that if he was, Ben said that, like, if he was a wrestler, that was the character he would have
0: wanted to be. Yeah, I was just going to ask you. I'm pretty sure he actually told that to Ted. Well, yeah. The other thing, think Patterson
1: that, told him actually.
0: <laughs> something yeah, wouldn't surprise me there either. One of the things that struck me about that about Ted DiBiase was not just his commitment to being the Million Dollar Man, but kind of a latitude he was given by the office, for want of a better phrase. Oh, I mean, yeah, he legitimately had stack, you know. He would pull out, you know. He did the thing where he would get someone in there and ask him to do something humiliating for a hundred bucks. No, I'm, I got two hundred. I got three hundred. You know, he don't. But he actually had that much money. Yeah, he was. Uh, he had to
1: live the gimmick. He had to live the gimmick. That was the key part there. So he had to travel first class. He had to travel by limo. He had to stay in the five star hotels because you can't have Ted the Million Dollar Man rolling up the Madison Square Garden in like a Ford Pinto, you know. Yeah. That's just, that wouldn't work. The kids, the fans would see that, and they'd just shit all over it. It would not work for that particular character. And I think it plays to what the company thought DiBiase as well, because there were probably, I mean, most people, you cannot trust that they can, You cannot. That's you, true. You can trust most wrestlers. They would not give most wrestlers, like, you know, gobs and gobs of money, because you know full well that every time they show up for the next show, like, uh, they'd be, with their hand out, do I need
0: more money. Well, one of the stories, and uh, I heard him on Steve Austin's podcast a couple of months ago, and one of the stories he told, one of the things he said was, Vince actually came to me and said, alright, I've got something else I want you to do. Now, don't abuse this, but if you're in a restaurant, you know, every now and then, you can. I would like you to stand up, tell everyone, this is who I am, this is what I do, and everyone's meal is on me. Mm. And it, it, I mean, it almost boggles the mind that you would have a guy, I mean, that you would trust someone that much. I mean, I don't know what he did to earn that degree of trust. and to be I mean, he kept it, too. I mean, it, it's amazing yeah. that you would, especially in the world of wrestling, which is like high school quite legitimately sometimes on steroids.
1: Yeah, I mean, you never hear too many crazy stories about DiBiase behind the scenes. Of course, later on, I mean, he, he would probably tell you worse stuff about himself than anybody else would. To be honest with you, because I remember his his first book came out, and he was talking about how he went down to the bottom and the gutter and whatever, and they wound up finding religion and stuff. But no, um, you never hear like all sorts of crazy stuff about DiBiase. He was a businessman, you know. He was a guy who was all about the business. He grew up in the business. His father, Iron Mike DiBiase, um, back in the day, and of course Teddy Teddy was trained by the Funks as well, so he had a solid wrestling background all about the business, if you will. He was willing to do what was right for, you know, the, the business. I keep saying the business, but that's what Teddy DiBiase was.
0: All right. Do you have a favorite of his uh, – there's a few other things I want to get into – but do you have a favorite of his uh, heat-getting moments? That you like? Because – and I'll just bring up mine. The one where he called up yeah. the kid and said, I'll give you a 1000 bucks if you can dribble this basketball ten times. Uh, yeah. And then kicks it out at nine. I mean, that's <laughs> – just, like, the worst thing you could possibly do to somebody.
1: It was, you know, it wasn't too good. And he had a lot of sketches like that. I think the one thing that, the, I think DiBiase's main story there, I mean, certainly early on, he wanted to be the World Wrestling Federation champion. And if he couldn't earn it on his own merits, which he could have earned it, he probably could have, but he decided he wanted to buy the title instead. So, of course, you have the whole gimmick with him and Andre, and the big, re- the Dave Hebner since the main event, that the whole deal goes down. Eventually, all washes down. DiBiase doesn't win the title. So of course, it's since, you since he can't, talks, man. yeah, since he this can't buy, we'll get the we'll, we'll hockey talk. Oh yes, I love honky talk. But uh, since DiBiase can't buy the World Wrestling Federation title that's been ruled out, he goes off to this uh, jewelry. He goes off to this jeweler, and I love it because he also walks in like wearing this like vampire type cape, which is pretty awesome. You oh but okay, you got rich people wearing capes. That's, probably, that's <laughs> always a good thought. That just shows it, you know keep. you're evil. You know you're evil when you're in a... I I mean, good guys have suits, have capes, and they have suits, but they don't have to wear the cape with the suits. I think bad guys wear <laughs> capes with suits. You know what I'm saying?
0: That that that's a very true, that's a very astute observation. I hadn't noticed that, but that's quite true.
1: Some, uh, that's some heel and face fashion tips right there. You know. But uh, DiBiase, of course, walks in with a cape and the suit, and they show off this, the, the million-dollar title belt. That's uh, the gold belt with the silver studs and all stuff. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars, and DiBiase becomes a million-dollar champion. And uh, that leads to all sorts of uh, other stuff going on. Um, you know, of course, he had the bodyguard, Virgil. I remember the classic suit with uh, Ted DiBiase. Was, DiBiase had a, he never held uh, a big title. Because it's a different era where not everybody held the world title. Like, I mean, nowadays, everybody's a world champion several times over. but... Jack never held a world held
0: champion. A-, Ziggler, a world
1: champion, that's right.
0: Heaven help he- us, was a world champion.
1: Yeah. But Diviowski didn't need to be the world champion because he had the million-dollar title. And hell, later on, he won the tag team title just for uh, kicks and giggles with Erwin R. Scheister, His Money Incorporated, another uh, team that got into people's... kind uh, of made people very angry. So, Nobody B. B. likes the IRS. <laughs> no, certainly not. And DiBiase is never a face during this time period, and there's never a reason for him to be, because there's always uh, something he could do, whether it be shooting with Roberts or with with Roddy Piper, or whether it be shooting with bodyguard Virgil later on, when Virgil sees the light, thanks to Roddy Piper.
0: Oh, that was, yeah, that was a good one, uh, him and Piper. Man, Piper is a face. Get into this a fair amount either next week or the week after, but... It was so, he was so good either way, but we just mentioned the Honky Tonk Man, so I want to go ahead and uh, bring that up real briefly, and then I actually want to touch on Andre's heel turn. Um, but the Honky Tonk Man, yeah, as the Intercontinental Champion, the greatest of all time. What in the world <laughs> led us to that point?
1: Well, I mean, I mean, what happened was uh, Honky Tonk Man started off as like a good guy. Uh, theoretically he came in doing the Elvis impersonating bits. Who, I think, he had the endorsement from Hulk Hogan even, but it wasn't quite getting over with the people. So they had the poll, like I don't remember if they had. The, I think they had the Virgin Daily Magazine, if memory serves me correctly. Like, uh, do you approve of the honky tonk man? And uh, the majority of people did not approve of the honky tonk man. So he became a bad guy. It's uh, it's kind of you know it's kind of before its time really, because nowadays you have like athletes and everybody pretty much polling the public, trying to figure out what they should do because nobody can make a decision anymore. So basically, WF yeah. let the fans make the decision here, and Talkie Talk man became the bad guy. So the, it's kind of ahead of its time in that regard, but uh, the reason he became champion, the Intercontinental champion, you know, Ricky Steamboat won it from Randy Savage in that classic, classic, classic WrestleMania three match, and Steamboat uh, needed some time off because he wanted to go home and be with his wife while she was having their kid and whatnot. And, uh, you know, that was fine. But on the way out, he had to drop the title of somebody. And there's been lots of different stories about uh, what led to it. Some Who knows knows what exactly happened. Basically, the Honky Tonk Man wound up getting the knot. He steamboat on, I think, his superstars of wrestling. It's not too long after wrestling at three. And then Honky Tonk Man just keeps on holding on to the title. And uh, either nobody can beat the guy or nobody can pin the guy or whatever but it gets under the skin of the fans for sure and all in all for god's sakes the arcan title title a lot more interesting during honky-tonk's reign than it was uh, than it is today i don't think i'm making doubt that
0: uh it's a shame that it's not used properly i mean the sad thing is and this is truly sad ladies and gentlemen what i'm about to say but in contemporary wrestling and someone who's more of a fan of the product than i am i'm a Eh, I'm aware more than I watch and take in, so feel free to correct me here. But okay. the last thing I remember being kind of interesting or entertaining regarding the intercontinental title was when Santino Morella had it, and he had the honkometer.
1: Well, and that plays right into it, you know. Even to this day, people still remember the honky talk man, and as the and he calls himself the greatest intercontinental champion of all time. And well, you can argue about. I mean, Randy Savage is obviously better in the ring, and you know guys like Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, people like that. But hey, nobody held that belt
0: longer than the Hockey tonk man. Just, uh, as a brief aside, and nobody ever who will asked, either. That's that's. I don't know. You know, if they let Barrett keep it while he was injured, I think he'd have the record beat.
1: The best chance of that happening would be they forget it exists. Hey,
0: JTG kept his job good. for a couple of years. Crazier things have happened quite possible.
1: I, I still believe that Paul London and Brian Kendrick held the tag team titles for a year because they forgot about them.
0: <laughs> they forgot I'm that. pretty sure it's entirely possible. Well, yeah, they were also that, on SmackDown a... at the time, and no one cared.
1: But, you know, I mean, and we can take shots of the Honky Tonk fans, uh, his work and whatnot. And he, his character was classically annoying, which, you know, as far as, like, annoying heels go, Honky Tonk Man's uh, top-notch. In that one of the best.
0: But I, I couldn't think of a better like, one off the top of my head who just made you, you just set your teeth on edge. Annoying. Why? Why are you still here?
1: Yeah, and, and it's not like you could even you can't even say, like, in the case of Savage, you, you can not really deny Savage's ability in the ring to have a great match. I mean, Savage is going to be turned face eventually anyway, and I'm sure we'll talk about him later, but uh, I'm just comparing him to the Honky Talk Man here because you couldn't sit here and say, well, the Honky Tonk Man is one of the best workers in the World Wrestling Federation. He, he just couldn't really do that, and that made it easier for him to keep his heel heat going. And, uh, of course, the Aaron Kendall title reign, of course, it led to an awesome moment, though, which was the goal for the whole title reign <laughs> to begin with. The awesome moment where Honky Tonk Man finally loses the Aaron Kendall title. He loses it to the Warrior under a mint in SummerSlam, at the Square Garden, puts the Warrior on the map.
0: That, everybody, if you've never heard it, if you've never seen that particular clip, find it and watch the reaction <laughs> of the people, mm-hmm. not just when he comes down. Him coming down gets a pretty good reaction. Well, the when they hear the music. When, when he actually gets that three count, that place goes nuts.
1: Because the hockey talk Man finally lost. That's, that bastard finally lost the title.
0: Thank it's morning again in America.
1: Yes. All the Warrior and Ronald Reagan. God bless America, indeed. But uh, that was the whole goal of the whole title reign to uh, add that classic moment where it makes the one guy the next big thing, and it certainly did that for the Warrior. And, you know, after that honky-tonk, still hung around for a while. He had the he had the classic tag team of rhythm and blues with Greg Valentine, which had Greg Valentine dyeing his hair, which was hilarious. Greg Valentine had God. black hair. That, that was fantastic. <laughs> so
0: wrong.
1: It really was. It just did, it did not look right at all.
0: It was, It is hilarious. Oh uh, yeah, that must have been. All right,
1: the, the did, Colonel Jimmy Hart in the Hockey talks corner.
0: Oh yes. Speaking of annoying personalities. <laughs>
1: yeah. We might get to the Colonel at some point. I don't know. All
0: right. I, I wanted to touch on uh, I'm to touch on Andre the Giant turning heel. Now the yeah. reason I want to do this is I'm not the greatest wrestling historian in the world, so I'm so when I, my memories of Andre and in my knowledge, not so much memories, but for the longest time he was he was first of all an attraction, and right. understandably so, given you know the fact that he's a giant. You don't want to wear out your welcome, in the sense that oh Andre the Giant's on TV. I mean nowadays we have the Big Show, and now oh, Big Show's just on TV again. I mean come on, the guy's he, he should be special in that sense, and sadly the you know, overexposure and whatnot, he isn't right now. Right. But. Was Andre ever really a heel prior to turning on Piper's Pit, uh, coming out with Bobby Heenan in that Piper's Pit segment?
1: Yes, he was. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't long-term anywhere. It wasn't uh, particularly advertised by anybody. But uh, um, as, far as, I, as far as I could tell, going back through the annals of time, whenever Andre popped up in any territory, he was usually the good guy coming in. Come in to have battle royals and win battle royals and take on the top heel in the territory or whatever. No, uh, if he did, it was it wasn't it wasn't an ordinary thing certainly. And whenever he appeared on WDF television, obviously he was always the uh, beloved good guy. So definitely, when Andre uh, turned against Hulk Hogan, it, it was uh, it was definitely something that shocked America in the role. I mean, for that matter, to
0: this day, that's one of the most chilling things you can see. Is uh, him coming through that curtain after being introduced by the great Bobby Heenan, and he looked so completely different. I mean, yeah. Andre, he never—I don't think Andre gets the credit for his ability to kind of manipulate an audience because you know, we all—he's you know, very fondly remembered, and rightfully so. And there's a lot of fun memories associated with him. But when you really look at some of the things that he was able to do, he—I mean—he comes out and instead of Typical Andre attire. He's got a suit, he cut his hair, and he never smiled. And he always had the the big smile. You know, like you said, he was kind of the happy-go-lucky big guy. Yeah, and now a big, friendly giant. And now he comes out and he looks at Hulk Hogan like there's already a tombstone on his head. I mean, that's one of the coldest like glares I've ever seen.
1: Indeed. Um, yeah, it was something else, that's for sure. And uh, Hogan was shocked. Everybody was shocked. And Andre, of course... Uh, Yanks out the crucifix and uh, cuts Hogan on the chest. It was just—it uh, was go time from there. And if they needed something to fill up the Pontiac Silverdome, that, that was definitely it. Hulk Hogan, of course, being the Hulkster. And if there's somebody that is big enough to be somebody big enough to be enough of a threat to Hogan to fill up that Silverdome, it was definitely Andre. I mean, I, th- there weren't too many other—not uh, too many other choices, to be honest with you. Certainly not on Andre's level.
0: No, I mean, having a guy like that, you know, I think it was Chris Jericho who I heard talk about it on a countdown one time. Like, you know, you kind of knew Hogan was going to win, but you couldn't for the life of you figure out how. I mean, that's you, right. Because you know, Hogan was the good guy, and the good guy has to win, and especially in the World Wrestling Federation, which was, a, a contrary to a lot of other promotions, tended to have a baby face on top.
1: Yeah, that's what they like.
0: So you got used to the good guy winning. And now here comes Andre, like, well, I, I'm pretty sure Hogan's going to win because Hogan always wins, but how in the world are you going, is he going to beat Andre the Giant?
1: And there's also the fact that if Andre didn't want to put Hulk, Hulk Hogan over, he wasn't going to, and
0: nobody
1: was going to make him.
0: You couldn't, what, what would you do? I mean, you'd, you'd, have to, you'd have to shoot
1: him. Seriously, you'd have to shoot the guy.
0: Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, and that might not work. Uh. Depending on where you got him, it might not, and the caliber of your weapon. Yeah, I mean, you'd have was, to bring something large. It was
1: definitely a tall order for the Hulkster, heading in the WrestleMania three, and it uh, filled up the Silver Dome. And of course, the match was what was at this time period. Andre was not the uh, he wasn't the performer he was back in the day. If you go back, watch his matches in like the seventies, the early eighties, the guy could move around. He could do some good stuff. Um, not so much kicks. in this. I mean that's way back. But yeah, he could he could go back in the day and uh not so much but by the time eighty seven rolled around he was not in best physical condition. The uh the, the, the giant system disease was kicking in. He couldn't he he had trouble getting to the ring most nights, but uh he, he he was able to do enough where he was a smart enough worker where he figured out he knew his limitations. He's able to do enough to uh make the match work and uh definitely that whether you think Hogan versus Andre was a five-star match, or not. It definitely accomplished the job it set out to do.
0: Yeah, and it was fitting that. I mean, yeah, there was the screwy ending when uh, Hogan, when Andre got the belt and then surrendered it to Ted DiBiase. Well, technically, yeah. he surrendered the tag team championships to Ted DiBiase. He wanted to keep the world title for himself. Well, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, that's that's true. These things happen sometimes. Andre, another one. Of these no, he's in heels. Sometimes when. You get these Frenchmen out there. They're not quite sure exactly what the English uh, equivalent is. So they're they're a little confused from time to time. And, uh, well, I mean, even in that wrestling a three match, remember earlier in the match where Hogan tried to slam them and Andre lands on top of them? You know, they, they had yeah. the whole thing. Was it a three count? They weren't quite sure. Yeah. It was two, but uh, it was close enough in the near fall for it to still be an, an issue throughout 1987 into the main event. And into WrestleMania four where they faced off again. They had no contest there. And uh man, it was just crazy stuff, man. And uh, you know, then then Andre starts working Randy Savage, he starts working off with warrior, as the tag team with Haku. Which I, him and Haku had some good matches, I thought. Especially considering Andre's continuing limitations. But uh that's yeah. pretty much his last his last major moment was uh lost wrestling at six the demolition. And then uh, Andre, basically Heenan blaming Andre for the loss, and uh, that wasn't one of Bobby's smarter moves, really. Kind of, kind of dumb on his part.
0: For a man no, called Italian, I mean, seriously. Yeah, don't, don't, don't piss off the giant. It, it never ends well. Yeah. It, uh, I will say this: it, it was good that he got to have his, uh, you know, face moment at WrestleMania, courtesy of Bobby Heenan. At the end, yeah. At
1: the end, and he had great, he had a good run on top as a heel heading into uh, heading into the end of his career. That was basically. I mean, before that heel run, basically, he was. He figured he was done, pretty much. He figured that he was. He, he was hurt. He was ready to retire. He was doing the princess bride and stuff like that. And basically, one thing that could bring him back uh, was something different. Was that heel turn?
0: Yeah, I. I imagine Vince did a heck of a sell job to him. Oh yeah,
1: and then, but Andre is another one of his heels that. I mean, getting or getting from place to place was had to be incredibly difficult for Andre. Just uh, you know, with uh, with, my, with technology being what it was, and you know, vehicles and airplanes and stuff like that, getting around had just had just to be you know hell oh, kind of okay. on earth for Andre. But he was he, he was another guy who didn't have he didn't have to worry about the fans going after him.
0: <laughs> okay, I've heard some horror stories about his traveling from guys like Pat Patterson or uh, Bobby yeah. Heenan. And, and they tell him from time to time. You know, and every now and then that gets put on DVD sets or. Uh, releases or whatnot, and it's just, you know, you can't help but feel bad for the guy who, you know, had to get a special car, had to buy two airplane seats, could not possibly have fit into one of those airplane airplane restrooms, had an emergency taken place. I mean... Spent several
1: life savings on alcohol.
0: Oh, yeah, also true. (laughs) He
1: was a world champion.
0: Well, you know, when you're that big, it takes more to take effect. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if he wanted to get drunk, he had to, he physically had to ingest more than you know, someone like you or I would.
1: Right? Yeah, I mean, more than us combined, probably.
0: Well, me especially because I don't drink, but <laughs> hypothetically. Well, okay.
1: Hypothetically speaking, of course, best.
0: Oh, any yeah. event.
1: Uh, yeah, definitely Andre, one of the uh, one of the legends of wrestling, and uh, his heel run was uh, definitely something that extended uh, Hulk Hogan's run on top too. That's probably the point where Hogan needs something a little little fresh to uh, keep him going.
0: Yeah, I mean, we had, what, the Steel Cage match with King Kong Bundy the year before?
1: Yeah.
0: And they had, I mean, the big feud early days during the boom was Hogan and Piper. And you had a great, I mean, you had a perfect protagonist antagonist pairing there but they had transitioned away from that Piper got into his thing with Mr. T and then uh, you know Piper just kind of got doing in, movies uh, well, some, uh, some good movies he's a part timer it's all good yeah yeah part timer nowadays he'd be world champ yeah uh, ironically enough I don't care about that one iota but you know, you, I mean he'd gone from Piper in a really hot angle to King Kong Bundy and that was uh, that was okay I mean it was him and Bundy decent enough yeah, Bundy
1: was fine but he was fine that believes no, he was believable. He was a walking condominium. He was uh yeah. God, like six five and four hundred and forty pounds. He was he was wider than most door frames out there. Just an yeah. insanely insanely wide person. Not like he wasn't like fat. He was wide. So his still body is. type is Incidentally. He still is obviously, yeah. He's still alive there, thank God. But yeah, he was he yeah,
0: he a, still out there. He, still making tight. money. He is All right. he's quite the convenient out here. I want to talk a little bit uh, about Randy Savage. Yeah. Because there's a guy who debuted, and I mean, he, he debuted with the angle of "I'm looking for the perfect manager" type of scenario. I right. mean, it would—it's be, been recycled a couple of times in contemporary wrestling. But
1: they had so many managers there, by the way.
0: Oh, so I just many. Remember you from could... watching
1: this I remember from watching this videos that there's there's like there'd be like team managers there vying for his services. Insane.
0: I mean, yeah, nowadays, you couldn't run that angle. I mean, they, no. they they tried it with, what, Bobby Roode a few years back in uh, Impact Wrestling, and they brought in, like, four ex-WWF guys. Yeah, they the in Bobby Heenan and... and
1: Colonel Parker, who hadn't done anything in years, and uh, Tracy Brooks, The Brooks found up getting it.
0: Uh, why would you turn down Bobby Heenan? <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> well, I I don't get it, but...
1: Well, Tracy Brooks is a good friend of mine, so I, I can understand where Bobby's coming from there.
0: <laughs> All right. But it was, so he debuts with that gimmick, and he winds up going not with any of the 15 established guys. He goes with Elizabeth, uh, one of the most famous pairings in wrestling. But what was it about Savage that made you want to hate him?
1: Just his, uh, I mean, just his bombastic attitude about, you know, him being better than everybody pretty much. He was just uh, outspoken, a loudmouth. I mean, it was tough for me because I always kind of liked the guy. To be I mean, as far back as as I was watching, I always kind of liked the guy, but he was a, he was a jerk to Elizabeth. That was one of the main things they would harp on. Contrary, he was a complete uh, jerk to Elizabeth usually in promos and uh, you know just basically uh, you know down talking the woman and whatnot. I think that was Elizabeth's main purpose was to have Randy Savage give him somebody to abuse. I think That's pretty much what her main purpose was, and to make. People feel sorry for her and to make them root for people like George
0: Animal. Oh, who doesn't love George, the animal steal the poor goofball. Yeah. He's a local, local guy. Old
1: George. He was a yeah. bad
0: heel back in the day too. So, but here's my thing. Savage, uh, you know, again, you know, kind of, you know, mistreats Elizabeth. Everyone loves Miss Elizabeth. So, you know, further boo to Randy Savage. He you know, gets the face turn, uh, WrestleMania four, I thought that his stuff as, I mean, for as good as all of his, you know, I'm superior, I am the macho man stuff was, when he got to be crazy, paranoid WWF champion Randy Orton, that was just a different facet and in some ways a much more intriguing one than him just kind of lording being the intercontinental champion around and potentially crushing Ricky Steamboat's throat. Yeah,
1: yeah, people didn't really like him crushing Steamboat's throat, but at the same time, he did get some cheers of wrestling at me. Some people did like him. They, they didn't really mind that too much. But, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely once he became champion. champion, of course he was best friends with Hulk Hogan. They were the mega powers. But, I don't know, Hogan's still kind of hanging around. People seem to like Hogan more. Hogan seems to have those eyes towards Miss Elizabeth. Well, what, what, what the, I can't remember the phrase. So it was
0: like, there's a lot of those eyes.
1: you remember this at all? Or,
0: oh, uh, Yeah.
1: He I had was, eyes for Miss Elizabeth. There's something. It wasn't like less of, What and, uh, was
0: it? it? It wasn't wandering. It was. Uh, oh, God. Yeah. It was such a great phrase too.
1: Yeah, it wasn't wandering. Wandering, wandering is Wandering
0: something else completely different. Yeah. But, I, 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 oh, God. I don't know. Maybe it'll yeah, come to me.
1: It's a great phrase though, and uh, I don't know. I mean, you could kind of, if you were a Hogan hater, like a lot of people were, you could you could justify Savage uh, being uh, paranoid about Hogan wanting his title and wanting his woman and stuff like that. He wasn't completely, uh, I don't think he's completely wrong to be uh, a little nervous about Hogan because Hogan was always that top guy. And you kind of got to figure the top guy always wants the top prize at the WWF title. I don't know about the whole Ms. Elizabeth thing, although there were some instances where Hogan would lift Elizabeth up in the shoulders, you know. So you can kind of
0: justify that. Well, that, that's one of the best things about it. I mean, there are two kinds, and I've mentioned this before on this show, there are two kinds of really great bad guys. And they all kind of break down into one of these two categories, the good ones. They're either just pure evil and love being evil, like Mr. Yeah. Burns, who just revels in his own sure. crapulence. Or Bobby they here. believe they are completely justified and are actually in the right. Yeah,
1: and Randy Savage was definitely in that latter category, where he thought he was in the right and... Even though people didn't agree with him, he still continued doing his thing. And of course, he'd move on to uh, have Sensational Sherry by his side, and he, he'd become the Macho King, Randy Savage.
0: His feud with Warrior was one of the most... It's one of the oddest pairings, because you put them together on paper, and you it might not necessarily work, but whatever it was, they had this crazy kind of wonderful chemistry.
1: Yeah, they're, they're both insane. <laughs> <Which helps. laughs> they both had that going for him. I, mean, I mean, Warrior was insane, and Savage, he had some insane promos going back in his day. No doubt about that. And uh, as far as the in-ring stuff goes, Warrior, although I don't think everybody, you won't confuse the guy with Bret Hart, but you could carry him. You could take him to a good match. And Randy Savage was kind of a worker back in the day where he liked to plan out his matches. And that's kind of the guys like Flair and Steamboat don't really agree with that because they think everything should be done in, in the ring. But Savage is a guy he like to he like to think stuff out beforehand. He like to plan everything out. So everything would be, would be perfect going in. He had the battle plan ready to go. And Warrior was the kind of guy who, when you give him something like that, like he had with Hogan WrestleMania six, where they did the same thing. You give him a good script for a good match, and he can do
0: it. Yeah, and uh, you know it, it's been mentioned that the more you hate the guy, the more powerful it is when he finally turns and you get reconciliation and Savage reuniting with Elizabeth. It, after he loses yep. to the Warrior. I think he mistreated Elizabeth ever. for years.
1: I think he mistreated Elizabeth for all these years, but Elizabeth still tried to stick by him all these years. Even if we thought Savage didn't love her or whatever, she still stuck with him until it just got to the point where she couldn't take any more. And finally, after Sherry turns against Savage, she runs down and gets her out of the ring. And yeah, definitely one of the classic uh, wrestling... What is of those WrestleMania moments that they always talk about. To me, the, to me, that match and the aftermath. To me, it's one of my top five. I've put it my top five of all a time, quite frankly. That might be a that might be a, a contentious statement for some people, but it's on my list due to the uh, due to the the match itself and to the story.
0: Yeah, every I think we're all suckers for redemption stories, uh, you know, one way or another. All right. Yeah. Who else do I have on my list here? Oh, let's see. I mean, this is an odd one in that and this might be one of the first instances of what we kind of associate now with being the cool heel to a degree. But sure. I want to talk about Jake Roberts.
1: Oh, the Because stage. Yeah.
0: Well, and I heard – I forget which interview it was with him. Uh, I, I, I couldn't tell you which one. But I heard one with him where he said that his only regret was that as a heel, he never took a backward step. He didn't play up being – Yeah, he he would cheat, and he would be, you know, I mean, he would do some of the heel stuff, but he never begged off, he never did, you know, I'm going to take a powder type things, and he mentions that the problem was eventually people, you know, you can be a jackass about it, but eventually the people are going to start to respect it, and that's that's kind of what facilitates people starting to cheer for you, and all of that stuff, and that was, I mean, he might be one of the first kind of iterations, and again, we mentioned it being, you know, the cool heel, which debatably just doesn't... Uh, I mean, thank you, Kevin Nash, for part of that. But, I mean, Jake was such an anomaly in a lot of ways in that... It, he, I mean, if you look at a lot of the things that we associate with professional wrestling in the 80s, Jake was not that.
1: Right, right. I would say the thing about Jake, from the time he started off as a heel in WDS, then he went face for a while, then he went heel again... I would say the thing about Jake Roberts for, you know, the most, most of the time is he never really changed. Like his, oh, yeah. his style, his style, his demeanor, uh, his uh, you know, his strategy towards life, that never really changed. What changed was the people he was going after. Like eventually he was going after the guys that we didn't. He started off going up against like Ricky Steamboat, guys that we liked, and then eventually started going against guys like Rick Rude and Teddy DiBiase, guys that we didn't like. He was justified in, uh, an instance where Rick Rude tried to hit on his wife, and Dick uh, <laughs> didn't really take too kindly to that. That wound up being a bad situation for Rick. But, be uh, that as may, there's also a time he got blinded by Rick Martel with the arrogance. You know, oh. they gave him
0: issues to work with. <laughs> Let's and have a he, blindfold, Matt. Blindfold, come on.
1: Yeah, yeah, the less said about that particular instance, the better. But uh, Here's what he, kills dude, me about
0: that. Nobody learned. We still got uh, them years later. <laughs> like, no.
1: Yeah. They even had Jake put the Giant for a little time there, and uh, Jake was, was, was not really snakes. Difficult. Yeah, he had the fear of snakes going on. But uh, uh, Jake, but eventually after that long face run where he faced all the bad guys down and whatnot, we eventually remembered that at the end of the, the, end of the day, Jake Roberts is was always will be a snake, and that's what happened when he uh, when he turned on the Ultimate Warrior when he uh, when he helped the Undertaker out and left him that snake-filled room. And that's what happened. We had the snake bite Randy Savage, and then we remembered that, uh, you know, Jake, he was always a snake. We never should have trusted the guy.
0: And that's really the best uh, kind of heel, too. Oh yeah. Well, what was his line? No, the, that's the reptile's just a toy that I bring around to scare people. I'm the real snake. Yep. And the fact that we bought into it <laughs> frequently
1: for years. Hell, he was a face for years, and yeah, like a I good said, fish, know, he, huh? he never really, he never changed.
0: No, he was just. Jake the Snake, and well, when he's opposite, you know, like Rick Rude or Ted DiBiase, we we cheer for him because we don't like who is But now he he had his he you know had his character, he had his psychology down, and you know, The especially, only thing, he, if, sorry,
1: go ahead. I was going to say, especially in '91, that was that was one of the most one of the most despicable heel runs, really, that Jake had during that time period. Where not only did he have the Snake fight Randy Savage, he also slapped the lister for God's sakes. Oh, uh, when something says that, that did not, you did not have uh, women getting beat on by men in the, in the 1980s and early 1990s. That did not happen. This wasn't each of you where every woman was getting beat up every week. That was something that definitely stood out and uh, made, it, made it pretty much impossible for even, I mean, I was a big Jake fan when I was a kid. I loved Jake Roberts, but even I was taken aback when he slapped Elizabeth. It was like,
0: oh, my goodness, what are you doing? Come on, we understand you're not liking Randy Savage, but what do you got against Elizabeth? Yeah, seriously, she didn't do anything. And then Crazy. he had it. then he had, you know, the had the cobra bite Randy. Yeah. Oh, now that I heard a rumor, and oh. I don't know if you he heard. Is it true that okay, they had the? I mean, the snake was devenomized naturally. Sure. Uh But I heard the rumor that snake bites Randy. You know, takes you know, Jake gets the snake off. I heard a rumor that. Okay, that actually the snake died a few weeks later.
1: You know what? I went, I I did not hear that, but I would not at all be surprised.
0: I would <laughs> I not be surprised
1: of... that the I would not be surprised that the snake would not survive an encounter with Randy Savage.
0: Like, it bites Randy Savage, and then just from all the crap going through his blood,
1: yeah, who has what's all through Savage's veins?
0: Yeah, a few, you know, a week or so later, the snake that bit him winds up doing, Oh, well, you know, <laughs> bite Randy well, Savage. Most of well, the wrestlers. famous
1: snake dying instance was the time where uh,
0: earthquake sat on the. Oh, that was <laughs> sat on. Uh, that, that was kind of, yeah.
1: that was an interesting well, way to get
0: just... some sympathy for.
1: Yeah, yeah, and then he, of course you brought in an even bigger snake because that's just what Jake did.
0: And then Lucifer, Lucifer. You know, the albino yeah. reticulated python,
1: which well, only backfired on everybody. Really, <laughs> <laughs> just giving the guy a bigger snake. I mean, what do you think, why are you killing off Jake's snake? You know, he's just going to get a bigger one, just even more of an annoyance.
0: Not very smart. Yeah, um, there was something else about him that I wanted to uh, I'm trying to remember what it was. There was some other in- oh when he uh, he debuted a uh, feud essentially debuted into the feud with Ricky Steamboat, didn't he, or was that Steamboat's re debut? I can't remember for the life of me the chronology of it.
1: It was uh, it was pretty. It was like Jake's first big thing, and uh, Steamboat had been around for a bit after that. He, could, he before that he was like Don Morocco. I think. Yeah, he was with Morocco
0: before that. That was. Yeah, he probably takes first, Beard. Uh, because him landing that DDT on the concrete... Ooh. Oh, that's painful. Oh, God. God. It, it, I mean, it, if you're going to... like now a bowling ball it, hitting the floor. God, it, it sounded awful. Yeah. I mean, it, to anyone out there, you can look up this clip and listen to the sound when Ricky's head smacks the concrete.
1: It's... Oh, yeah, I mean... Oh, <laughs> And Jake told him before he did it. You know, I mean, he, he he told him it's like, okay, uh, yeah, you shouldn't be doing this on the floor. Or it's a bad idea. You know, he told him, <sighs> but they didn't listen. They're like, nah, no, on the floor, I'll be fine.
0: Well, I mean, nowadays you can do it safely. There's a couple of ways, in my understanding, and I'm not a trained wrestler by any stretch of the. Year, but my understanding, from what I've observed, is you can do it safely in two ways. One of which is you get your hand underneath your head, lessen the impact. And the other is instead of taking the instead of taking it flat, uh, a face bump, you do a somersault. Yeah, uh, I and you that, you and that's a safer. somersault
1: Yeah, I could see where you could you try well, somersault. Well, that's what they do
0: nowadays on the, well, you, That's what they do nowadays if you're doing that on the floor, right? Well, I mean nowadays you have pads and. What,
1: yeah, nowadays you, everybody does a DC on the floor and everybody kicks out too.
0: Yeah, well, what are you gonna do? does that mean anything.
1: That's another that's another rant for another day.
0: A, a little 48. bit, and I don't disagree with you as far as that goes. But I mean, uh, still, ow, and yeah, that was, that was brutal. That was, uh, and the fact that he got the—I I, mean—credit to Jake for just being as completely remorseless on screen as you possibly could be.
1: <laughs> well, I think uh, I don't think that was a work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I warned you.
1: Yeah, he, he told I don't him, feel him he to pick up Bear That's the biggest amount of dead weight he's ever lifted in his life, that's for sure. <laughs> Lifting
0: uh, dead weight had, is not easy.
1: No, he had Steamboat bring out the Commodore Dragon later on to feed with the snake. So it was
0: just an alligator.
1: It was just an alligator, but as far as... the that was a big time for uh, for uh, animals and reptiles and things of that nature in that era. You don't see that a lot now.
0: No, I think, no, I think you don't. ever since I
1: think ever since uh, Pepper got eaten by Big Boss Man, it's just kind of uh, it
0: kind of might have been the end of it coming
1: up. Yeah, kind of oh. them. Tori Wilson had a dog for a little. Bit. She did.
0: She had her dog with her for a while. Uh, I think there's a guy in Chikara who has like a stuffed um, parakeet that he keeps with him. Pigeon. It's a feral. It's uh, a it, it's a feral pigeon. <laughs>
1: well, sometimes in Chikara you'll see Dre. You'll see uh, like animals wrestling in Chikara.
0: He doesn't love drag- dragons.
1: They show up on occasion. Dragon, dragon. Not I've not been around in a
0: while. CP Monk and Colt Money. Good time. <laughs> I love that promotion so much. It's not it's not rational, but I get such a kick out of some of their stuff. It's a it's
1: a good time. Good time. Which uh at the end of the day wrestling should be a good time.
0: Yeah. All right, um, the last guy well, not the last guy, but I want to talk briefly on the two men who kind of flanked Roddy Piper throughout those early boom years in the forms of Paul Paul Orndorff and Cowboy Bob Orton.
1: Yeah,
0: Orndorff was kind of the primary antagonist towards Hogan in the sense that I think it was it was Orndorff who got a couple of title shots. Uh, He was the one who had the uh, the famous cage match that nearly ended in a draw. Was Orndorff, if memory serves? That's right. So uh, was he just? So was his whole thing just? Was he just another you know? uh, I you know I built like a Greek god, which he was. Let's be fair. But was that kind of his thing? Was I just look better than you and I'm superior? Or did he have something else kind of going on there?
1: Well, I mean, when he started off as Mister Wonderful, and that was that was pretty much his thing. He was a uh, he was a cocky son of a gun. He had that million dollar body. He had actually when they first started off, they had I remember Orndorff's debut match in Madison Square Garden was also Piper's debut, and Piper debuted as Orndorff's manager because I think Piper was I think Piper is still injured from the arcade dog, dog collar match, so they put him in Orndorff's corner. Kind of got a link together. And, uh, yeah, Orndorf was a, a cocky son of a gun. Mr. Wonderful, he called himself. Uh, looked better than everybody. And uh, him and Hogan had some history going back. They are both from the uh, Tampa area. So you can imagine that they had uh, some history and um, some uh, tough chemistry, I guess you could say. They worked pretty hard against each other. Uh, they were both trying to show that they were the better guy, which makes for interesting matches, definitely. In wrestling, and uh Hogan Ordorf always had that going, and of course uh WrestleMania ones when uh, they do the turn on Ordorf after he loses the uh after he loses the tag team match but uh uh Hor- bigger heel run was later on when uh after he and Hulk Hogan became best friends and whatnot eventually Hogan kind of uh, got big head, he stopped returning Ordorff's calls. Ordorff would try to call Hogan and try to hook up for like an exercise or whatever, and Hogan just didn't have time for it. And uh, that eventually made Orndorff uh, uh, crazy and whatnot. And he decided that he's going to turn against Hulk Hogan. And Orndorff was the first guy to turn against Hulk Hogan. And that led to big box office uh, pretty much all over the country.
0: Yeah, well, I imagine what? I mean, turning on Hogan... Turning on Hogan wasn't the same as turning on Sting,
1: which... Well, everybody did that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned this I mean... Sting must be one of, his character must be one of the dumbest guys in history. I mean, really? how many times did just Ric Flair turn? Let's ignore everyone else. Let's just count Ric Flair here.
1: Yeah, uh, Ric Flair uh, turned on Sting at least once a year, it seemed, uh, for quite a while there. And it eventually got to the point where it was even comedic, because I remember the la- one of the last times it did, in like 95 or so, Sting even said, like, he knew Flair would turn against him, and, uh, you know, eventually Flair did turn the Sting, up again some revenge. So I don't know if that makes it better or worse. To be honest with you, but uh, I don't know. No, oh. a lot of people. No, one, usually once you were on Hogan's good side in the '80s, you kind of stayed there. Like you know, he'd, he'd, he'd like hang out like the junkyard dog and people like that, and they'd Jimmy he'd snooker. like tag team occasionally. Jimmy Snuka, and they'd all be friends and whatnot. They all they all knew their role. They knew Hogan was the guy driving the bus, and they. They'd hang out and get the money. It's a, it's a smart thing to do, but uh, Orndorff, he just uh, got jealous, man. He got he got jealous of Hogan. He got uh, mad that Hogan wouldn't hang out with him. They wouldn't go work out, whatever. And uh, it's another one of his cases where you could kind of uh, you kind of justify Orndorff's uh, stance because, you know, Hogan tells him they're like best friends and all that, and yet uh, he doesn't seem to want to hang around the guy. And I'm sure a lot of us could probably identify with that. We've all had people that told us we were friends, and then
0: they wouldn't
1: hang out with us. At least I have.
0: Yeah. No, no, yeah. I, I think that's a universal thing. We've all been there. Yeah, a, so, yeah, so I uh, think about you can Cowboy the, Bob. You can even
1: say that Hogan has been the wrong, but it's still, you know, all cares about Yeah.
0: So. He's still Ho- it's still Hogan. It's still that time frame. He's still everyone's favorite. Yeah. But, I'm just curious about this. Cowboy Bob, was he, I mean, okay, I'm going to phrase this. I don't get any of the Orton. I don't understand why... I don't get the appeal. And
1: okay.
0: Specifically, that references Randy, who I have seen, and I just... Anytime he's on television, I feel I could go do anything else, and I would be slightly more entertained. Rare exceptions, <laughs> but generally speaking. And now, that's me. Plenty of people like him, like his work. Okay, I'm not saying yeah. everyone should hate him. What was it about Cowboy Bob that... Was it just his association with Piper that got him, you know, to be – that got him all that heat, or was it – I mean, he had the, you know, the broken arm for a long – I mean, some of it was legitimate, but he – I mean, Yeah, I mean – The cast. I mean, did him just wearing that cast all the time contribute? They're like, no, no, my arm's that, broken.
1: That definitely helps, man. People don't like it when, you, when they think you're faking an injury. And he doesn't feel bad for Pop, though, because yeah, it's tough to say what kind of career Bob Orton could have had if he didn't have that chronic arm injury, the figure that if he didn't have that injury that he never got healed up, he probably would have won a couple more times. I, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I'm just saying that's quite possible. But yeah, uh, you know, no I mean, a lot of the had to have, a lot of that to with Piper, but uh, Orton was also doing like the kind of heel lackey thing before you got there. If you go back to '83 with uh, Flair and Race and uh, NWA, uh, it was Slater and uh, is uh, Bob Orton and is his, uh, Dick Slater that were racist flunkies that tried to break Ric Flair's neck and put him out of wrestling. So the heel flunky was pretty much what Bob Orton Jr. was born to do. And uh, him and Piper had that, uh, they had a great chemistry together. Uh, you know, they were like uh, best friends forever pretty much. And uh, it's always uh, pretty amusing. And Bob had that arm injury that uh, never quite healed properly. And uh, <laughs> while he was a good in-ring guy, he didn't really like stand out, you know. Like you knew he was good, but he wasn't like a top-flight kind of guy that just kind of set the world on fire. But he did a great job of making people who who were in the ring with him uh, better than they usually were.
0: And you know that's a lost art, as far as per- yeah. in general. This is a minor tangent, but there's a difference between being able to have a good match and being able to make your opponent look good. Uh, now, mm-hmm. not always. There, there's some overlap in skill sets, but the loss of talent who exists almost solely to get in the ring with someone, contemporarily speaking, like say Rusev or you know someone else like that, or you know or babyface for that matter, you know someone for Roman Reigns to go out there and beat and beat decisively, but look really good while doing it. And you yes. don't have that nowadays. You have, I mean, you have guys that you can throw out there to take a loss, but the mindset is not, okay, what can I do necessarily to make this guy look as good as possible? Which is what a lot of those right. other guys, guys like Bob Orton or, you know, Iron Mike Sharp, Barry Horowitz type of scenario, they, their mentality was, I want to make my opponent look good. Not and it just seems like that's a mindset that's missing from a lot of contemporary wrestling.
1: Yeah, it really is. And I think the problem that plays. I think the problem with that is that while guys might look back to guys like Bob Orton guys like Mike Sharp and people like that, they don't want to necessarily get caught up in that role. They don't want to be the guy that makes the other guy look good. They want to be the guy that gets to look good. I mean, yeah. a guy like uh, a guy like Dolph Ziggler would be perfect, and perfect is the guy that makes the other guy look like a
0: million bucks. But the Him problem with that Ryder, is that, as, just, yeah, as just the duo that makes everyone else look good.
1: Yeah, and the, and there, but I think another problem with that is in, in the fans' eyes because the fans who will get if, if if Dolph Ziggler and Ryder, to a lesser extent, if they do that all the time. And then the fans get mad, like, why aren't we having Zack Ryder do more? Why aren't we having Dolph Ziggler or do more? So it's kind of one of those things where the fans in a way are kinda of cheating themselves out of that. Yeah, uh, and,
0: and, and I I, think, and I
1: also think it's a, and there's a mentality that guys don't want to uh guys want to be on top.
0: Yeah, I I, I think you're right. It's uh it, it you know, the fan reaction has to be taken into consideration. All right, um anyway. A couple of other guys I really wanted to talk about. Let me look at my list here. Oh, um, this loosely fits into this time frame, and I'll, I'll stress loosely here, because I, I want to move a little bit. I, I basically want to touch, like, boom into kind of immediately before and then into the Attitude Era type stuff. So when yeah, I mention The Undertaker, like as far as a, yeah. a character goes in the World Wrestling Federation, he fits it, he, I, I'm not stepping out of my chronology. My, self-imposed chronological restrictions here. The Undertaker was a really good character, a really good monster heel. I mean, what, his first year? I think on, like, his first year anniversary of being in the promotion, he beat Hulk Hogan for the title. Yeah, that was big time. And, I mean, kids were crying. People, I mean, the audience was completely invested in that as far as Hogan can't knock the Undertaker over, and oh, Ric Flair came down with how oh, that dirty no, and yeah. but him as a character, I mean, and his presentation, he was great as a heel. I mean, people were legitimately kind of you know unnerved by him.
1: He was a scary dude. That was a, he was just a scary looking dude. Uh, nothing hurt him. He felt no pain. He didn't he didn't sell anything. You know, he, uh, you know. uh... And Sometimes we knock guys for not selling stuff, but in a certain context, when that's your character and you portray it so well, it works. The Undertaker shouldn't have been selling stuff back in that day. He was a zombie. Uh, just anybody you put in his path, he's going to tear him down. He's going to knock him down. He's not going to say a whole lot other than rest him. He's got that, that creepy Paul Bearer by his side, and Paul is going to speak in that creepy voice. Uh, I don't have a good Paul Bearer impression, um, unfortunately. I wish I did. That, that guy had a great point. Oh, it was and
0: high-pitched and warbly. Yeah,
1: yeah it was just a, and perfect, the perfect managing character for The Undertaker. One of the best uh, wrestler-manager pairings of all time, in my humble opinion, and probably most as well. But uh, yeah, definitely uh, that first year, that first uh, Undertaker he'll run, he comes in as uh, Million Dollar Man and Mystery Partner Survivor Series. He just... Uh, he tombstones people. He gets counted out by. He gets counted out because he starts kicking too much ass outside. It's Which is the best time. way to lose. Yeah, best lose. way to lose. It's the oldest qualification by kicking too much ass. It's a good time. But uh, for that year, I mean, he just ran through anybody they put in front of him. It didn't matter who it was. Never felt any pain. They put him up against the Hulkster. You think, well, the Hulkster will do something against him. And the Hulkster did more than most. Undertaker still got that win. He got the. Uh, yeah, he lost it to Tuesday in Texas and then there's some other stuff after that. So it-, it led to a face turn. But uh definitely Undertaker Heel that first year. That is you know, if you're looking if you're like a uh if you're like a wrestling booker or promoter or whatever, you're looking for a way to uh put somebody over strong just watch what they did with the Undertaker for that first year. That- that's probably the best way you could learn how to do it.
0: Uh, yeah, and mean he, again, he had body bag matches, too, didn't he? I mean, before we got, I mean, nowadays you have the casket matches and all that other stuff, and I imagine it was just too much of a logistical problem to do that on a regular basis, but body bags yeah. are relatively easy to come by. And to be perfectly frank, I think a body bag would scare me more than a coffin, the idea of being sealed in one.
1: Yeah, he put the, he put the jobbers in body bags during his matches, and as a kid, that definitely freaked me the hell out. Like, put the guy, put the guy in a bag, what the hell?
0: <laughs> a really thick bag that had I mean you can't breathe in there it's going to get hot yeah not, not a good time
1: and of course yeah and the, of course the legendary segment where uh, they locked the warrior in the casket and that thing legitimately creeped me out too. that, that one gave me nightmares I'm not going to lie that was scary stuff when I was uh, 7 years old
0: ah, to have those eyes again to be a child and just enjoy
1: <laughs> <laughs> not
0: overanalyze yeah. stuff yeah but
1: Undertaker was a, and uh, he he's been scary for most of his career. I mean, I mean uh, he too, <laughs> even when he's doing
0: Biker Taker, you know he's <laughs> still scary. I like, you know what though? I, I like
1: Biker Taker though. I I, do I,
0: too. I
1: I thought that was I thought I think that was underrated. I think it was underrated portion of his career where he, especially when he, when he was Big Evil Red Devil, the Undertaker, and uh, he, he just he was a he was a bad dude, man. And he wasn't it wasn't the typical Undertaker stuff. He did a bit more talking. He's like that uh, loud big-ass redneck that can beat the crap out of you. And he played that to a freaking...
0: And they, oh, yeah, and he uh, he did so many awful things to the Hardys.
1: <laughs> he did awful things to everybody. Didn't he make, like, Tommy Dreamer eat, eat his vomit or something?
0: Ah, uh, something like that. It might have been urine. He made Tommy Dreamer eat something. It was probably he, he Something awful. Something. Now, course, but, but, that was when Dreamer was doing the I'll do disgusting things gimmick.
1: Which was an awful gimmick, too. Yeah. That's the best That's thing you can right do with guy. Tommy
0: Dreamer? Really? Come on. <laughs>
1: Tommy Dreamer's not one of those guys who just used to have him put people over. He's one of those guys makes people like a million bucks.
0: You didn't have to have him
1: bopping through uh, stuff.
0: No, no, he oh, right. didn't. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, this is completely in a different time, and I will get into it more at a later date, I believe. But when he was doing the biker thing, I mean, both both times, when he was a heel, when he was a face, I mean, his face stuff on SmackDown at, um, after the draft, uh, he got traded, he turned face, and his first thing, I think, over there was he feuded with Brock Lesnar after Lesnar had taken the title off of The Rock. And he and Lesnar had some great matches. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's more than your typical big man fare, but, you know, those two had some really nice chemistry.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was a big fan of the Unforgiven match due to the ending, which was, uh, the ending wasn't good, they had the disqualification and Undertaker threw Lesnar through some sign or something. I'm a big fan of that, but out of the cell though, I think that is was no mercy. There was that. That was yeah. a that was a badass
0: match. One of my favorite that cell is, matches. I mean, that might element. be number yeah, three highest to famous too.
1: Yeah, definitely one of the better cell matches. Uh, lots of uh, goofy stuff going on. You had yeah, uh, hell, Paul Heyman got busted open during that match. Yeah, yeah high think... cage.
0: Yeah, through one of the camera holes, he reached through and grabbed him and then yanked him into the fence. Yeah. Good times. Yeah, Undertaker
1: blood like freaking sieve. Missed name his
0: blood. Oh yeah, the whole match he was bleeding. Uh, missed his. He, I don't know if he went too deep or he nicked something. I mean, it wasn't an artery, but he was leaking the whole time.
1: Yeah, that was that was one that was one of the worst ones. Uh, but uh, yeah, definitely definitely good stuff. Undertaker, Undertaker in general, good guy.
0: Oh yeah. All right. Let's see, I think that's everyone I had on my list that I really. That I remembered and really wanted to talk about. Anyone uh, jump out at you that we've omitted from you know, the early from the '80s days of the World Wrestling Federation?
1: Well, um, I might. Uh, I don't think we discussed a whole, whole lot of tag teams. I don't think we no. discussed oh, a whole okay. lot of, thing of
0: tag teams. Yeah, the Hart tag
1: teams. I I would say the Hart Foundation uh, for one. Uh, definitely oh, for yeah. Hartigan and I. Hart Hart Foundation along with Jimmy Hart, the Mouth of the South. Um, Brett, we all know about Brett's uh, faults on the microphone. He'll never be like the greatest talker of all time or whatever. And definitely early on in his career, he wasn't really sure of himself. But uh, he stuck with Neidhart. uh, Neidhart was certainly a promo in his own right. And uh, Jimmy Hart, of course, could talk.
0: Neidhart was the typical 80s pro wrestler, talk loud, talk fast kind of. And it worked.
1: I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, it got, the, it got the
0: message across, though. Yeah. And uh,
1: Brett, uh, he, he definitely grew into his own as part of that tag team where you know, Neidhart was able to do, like, the talking and whatnot, but Brett could do a lot of the work, and Neidhart could fill in uh, with the power stuff. Uh, uh, Brett and Jim were a great combination, I think, of a, the scientific ability – and the powerhouse, which uh, you know, it's a perfect combination for guys to form a brilliant tag team, which they were for many years.
0: Still hold true. You can still use that same kind of methodology in pairing guys up, and it works yeah. works very well.
1: Yeah, as far as their heel, as far as like being heels and whatnot go, I mean, pretty much anybody with Jimmy Hart was going to get boots uh, So pretty much a given. And they were facing like guys like the British Bulldogs, who were you know pretty popular in their own right. And uh, the Hartson Bulldogs, man, talk so talk about yeah
0: class
1: up and down the
0: pike those were those were some really good stuff uh i i still have fond memories of those um and I'm trying to think of there was a tag team that i had in mind that you mentioned that, cause, the, um, other talked, that the
1: other one the one that pops up to me is demolition
0: uh that's it okay now you know let me say this for a tag team that started off as kind of a road warriors knockoff <laughs> They wound up crafting their own personas and became a, a pretty solid entity in their own right.
1: They were. Um, yeah, I mean, that, they were kind of crafted, X and Smash, and does uh, definitely the only one. Every territory pretty much had their own Road Warrior knockoffs.
0: That's true. They were,
1: they were Like, the Powers of Pain started off in a similar fashion, and, uh,
0: you know, a lot of other
1: ones we don't remember because they weren't very good. but uh, Yeah, runners. I mean, that's how it... Yeah, the, the Blade Runners, indeed. But uh, that's how Axe and Smash started off. And uh, I mean, But they were legit, though. Bill Eady back in the day, as a mass superstar, he was a pretty darn good heel as a mass superstar and as Axe. He got a great promo. And uh, Smash, Gary Darso, he was part of that Minnesota bodybuilding clique with Hawk and Animal and Rick Rude and those guys. And uh there's just the two powerhouse guys who just uh, – they would just clubber people, as Husky Race would say, and it wasn't always the prettiest thing of all time. They had the cool looking paint, they had those uh, the kind of the S and looking attire, which is kind of strange going back,
0: but uh, definitely an effective. Well, in the eighty it, 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 it was associated more with like biker col- biker and, par- and punk culture in the eighties than it was with. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, when you look back now, it looks kind of weird, but uh, I'm sure back in the day it, it was fine. But they look cool. Don't get me wrong, but uh, they were definitely uh, definitely effective in their role. Uh, they were the longest reigning tag team champions until the previously mentioned London and Kendrick knocked them off. Those days, the so bizarre. Yeah, it was, it was bizarre. Now um, I can think of a couple of other guys, but I'm not sure if you want to hold off on them for the Heenan show or not because I had a couple of guys that are really you know. Uh, along with Heenan, for a lot, were I thought of Mr. Perfect. I think of uh, Ravishing Rick
0: Rude. Uh, let's and talk about Rude. I do want to. I, I do want to get into Perfect more with Heenan because of how kind of inseparable they were as a duo. But Rude sure, was. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he had. He did plenty of stuff. You know, kind of independent of Heenan. I mean, again, there's a few guys who are just so inec- inex. Inexorably, Rude? I can speak. <laughs> a now, with the Heenan. thing about the
1: the Rude Heenan relationship was kind of. Strange different from the rest of Heathen's relationships, and uh, Bobby's talked about this before, Rude didn't really want a manager. He, he thought that Heathen was there to basically take the heat off him. And uh, I don't, now, we're not sure if Rick ever quite figured out that uh, Heathen was there to get the heat on Rick, but uh, basically Rude wanted all the heat to be on himself. He didn't feel like he needed a manager. And, well, I mean, you can kind of, he was a good promo. It's not like he needed Bobby to talk for him or nothing, but... Uh, not like they weren't friends or nothing, it's just kind of a different dynamic than uh, you know, some of his other wrestler-manager relationships.
0: Well, that kind of strikes me, the, the nature of their on-screen pairing was more, uh, kind of like a, from a contemporary standpoint, when you paired up CM Punk and Paul Heyman. Yeah. Now, I, yeah. Punk didn't need a mouthpiece, which is traditionally one of the things a manager is. You have a guy who can't talk, like Brock Lesnar, for ex- another contemporary example, you pair him with someone sure. that can, and that was a staple of you know, early professional wrestling. You had a guy who couldn't cut a promo. All right, that's why we've got you know, Captain Lou Albano, Freddie Blassie, Gary Hart, Bobby. That's why these guys are on staff, so you can have someone sure. who doesn't talk have a mouthpiece. Rude, didn't, you know, Rude was a good promo. He had good presentation on his own, but from a fan standpoint... You take all of the greatness of Rick Rude that made you hate him, and then just as kind of the final screw you, Bobby the Brain Heenan is managing this guy. That's
1: right. He's, he's part of the Heenan family, so you can't like
0: him. You just—I mean—you just can't. And that's one of those things where you know, a good wrestler, a guy who can really go in the ring, tends to get eventually. You—the fans start becoming so entertained, they start cheering you. There were a few things that can mitigate that. Bobby Heenan was one of them. Yeah, you could not cheer anyone is, with Bobby Heenan.
1: Right, as, Rupert, as long as Rude was part of the Heenan family, he didn't have to worry about accidentally being turned to a face, which uh, was definitely something that could have happened because was no one of these loudmouth guys, with they uh, you know talked down on everybody, insulted everybody, he was better looking than everybody. Uh, but at the same time, you know, he was cool yeah kind of that was kind of a cool heel in a way yeah but uh but not but he wasn't like trying to be cool, you know what I'm saying
0: no, it was just his personality, you know with his body and the way he talked, and look, we all want to be ladies men it, it, it's am- it's a natural thing that men have, and years of evolution have programmed us this way in social uh, social circumstances as well, so the fact that here's a good looking guy. Who can wrestle? Who can get ostensibly any woman he wants? Okay, he's going to talk down to us, and we're going to be annoyed by it. But eventually, we'll start kind of living vicariously through that because that's everything we wish to cheer for and aspire to be. Yeah. And he had a he had so, had cool
1: personality, I would say. He had a cool personality, but he did not yeah. wrestle like a cool heel. You know, he would he was, oh. he, he was one of the stooging heels. He'd bump his ass up for people. He would go, he would totally run away. He would do stuff like that because he didn't want to get hurt or whatever. So, he, he just had some cool personality face. going for him. Certainly not. I mean, I mean, Ravish and Rick, come on. But, uh, yeah, definitely do uh, that. And he was annoying. No one is annoying guys, but uh, you basically program him, him with anybody. He'd be guaranteed to get some kind of reaction.
0: Yeah, and, and he had some good stuff. I mean, his stuff with Jake Roberts was good. He got some of the better stuff out of the Warrior, like you mentioned. Warrior, oh, yeah. not a, not a great worker in the traditional sense, but – under the right circumstances, he could have a good match. And that's putting true. Rick Roode in there happened to constitute good cir- those circumstances. Yep, yep, that's uh, that's for sure. But uh,
1: yeah, I mean, and Roode is to this day. I think Roode is a guy that a lot of people think is uh, man, possibly underrated in this day and age. You don't see like uh, you don't see a lot of Rick Roode uh, being talked about by WWE in general, at least not until recently. Um, I mean, he might pop a little more a little more on the network now, but. Kind of one of
0: the guys that kind of feels like they've been forgotten a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I agree. All right. Um, okay, the last one I want to talk about, since we're kind of talking about tag teams to wrap this up, the breakup of force <laughs> Because you had, what, that was what, Rick Martell and Tito Santana? Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: I mean, it, they were thrown together, kind of, and, you know, I mean, they got their whole strike force nickname just because we will strike with force. I mean, it was one of those kind of they had the girls and cars songs
1: too, so uh, I wasn't a big Pride Force
0: fan to be honest. <laughs> no, I, I mean it's one of those things where they had good matches, but I think the breakup wound up facilitating more because it let Rick Martel turn into the mo- you know, become the arrogant heel that he wound up being you know, so very yeah, well, and Joe Santana got to return to being the you know underdog babyface that uh, another role that he did very very well. But the know, model Rick Martel was fantastic. is fantastic. Oh, god. Okay. That's one of those guys you hate. You just hate guys like that.
1: Oh, yeah, and Martel, uh, I, would, I would include him with Rick Rudy, another guy that I think kind of gets lost in the shuffle that doesn't quite get been remembered for being as good as he was. He was a uh, top-notch hearing competitor. He never held the WWF title because, you know, again, a lot of people didn't, and he was never really in that position. He was like the mid-card heel. He was like the opening match bad guy that would come out for, like, the big shows. Like the first match of WrestleMania to have Rick Martel coming out, and people start doing they like the model. And that's a good way to start the show.
0: Yeah. Um, oh, brief aside. Uh, the last guy I want to talk about, and I feel that I get, when we started talking about guys who kind of get uh, forgotten in the shuffle, if he came to mind. Uh, but we're down to a minute of live time, so anyone listening live, uh, come back. I imagine this shouldn't. You know, the rest of this won't take more than thirty minutes, give or take. So, and I'll put links back up to the show after we're done. So, thank you for listening live. And uh, come back. We'll I'll have the rest of it put it up on Facebook and Twitter and all that fun stuff. Um, but speaking of guys who just don't you know, seem to have been forgotten, despite being exceptionally talented, um, Don Morocco. Oh yeah. I mean I. Yes. Yes. I got talking with uh, Pat Mullen last week a little bit about him and just how people tend to forget that he was you know around and that he was so so good. I mean he made pop baby faces wherever he went because people hated him.
1: They really did. He was, uh, he was despised. He was a beach bum, man. He was a beach bum because, I mean, you know, the thing about Morocco, and people like like smart internet fans will say that, you know, Morocco is a little bit lazy in his matches from time to time. And while well, it plays with his character because he's a beach bum, he didn't have to try to be magnificent, you know? Just uh, could kind of coast along doing his thing. But, man... When he got in a hot feud and when he had, like, a top base base going against him, and, you know, I'm thinking about that feud. It, it, it falls out of the time frame a little bit, but that's okay, I think. It is but mouthful. Big Bully and Tommy Dreamer and Bully Ray and everybody else talks about how they became huge fans thanks to Superfly Jimmy Snuka versus Don Morocco in the steel cage in Madison Square Garden in 1983.
0: God, what, what a wonderful clash of styles and personalities that wound up being. I mean, you had Morocco as the champion, and he was, again, the beach bum and arrogant, and this is God-given. And then you had, you know, Jimmy Snuka, who in his heyday, I've heard rumors, mind you, so there's my big caveat. If Vince couldn't sign Hogan, he was going to go forward with national expansion with Jimmy Snooker in that role. That's, and-
1: been, that's been rumored, and there's been other factors that might have led to that not being a possibility which we probably yeah. shouldn't get into, for legal reasons.
0: There are, yeah, I don't, I don't want to have to read a big spiel of boiler legal boilerplate. But yeah. the point being, that, at the time, that wouldn't have been all that odd because Snuka was over. People loved Jimmy Superfly Snuka.
1: Absolutely.
0: And,
1: uh, yeah, they loved Snuka, and they wanted to see Snuka guys revenge against Morocco in that cage match. And even when Morocco did retain the title by falling outside of the cage, which is a great way <laughs> great. for the heels. One of the best ways for the heels to win a cage match is by falling out of out the door. That's and he okay.
0: hit him so hard he fell out of the cage.
1: Yeah. It's always great when the heel uh, wins the match that way. You know what's not great, though, is when the face wins the match that way. And I saw no. that happen in Cincinnati in 1996. It was awful. It, it was uh, Hunter Hearst-Helmsley and Duke the Dumpster-Gers. Which is bad enough and that, he, that the
0: cage matches it is.
1: <laughs> but this yeah. wins by getting... Punched out
0: of the door. It terrible. Uh, it makes your baby face look stupid. It makes your heel look stupid. It just it, 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 bad idea. To anybody it's else, stable
1: of um, stable modern wrestling making everybody look
0: stupid. Yes. Hey, look, the baby face requests the cage match so he can have a fair fight with the heel. Five minutes in, he tries to escape from the cage. Of course,
1: good, good times uh, there, but uh, but, it's a, but that's a great way for the heel to win the match. is by getting
0: knocked out of the cage and falling flat on his face. And for every reason it's bad face, it's great for a heel simple logic. Yeah,
1: yeah. but then, of course, Snook still gets his revenge. He drags Morocco back in the ring, goes up to the top of the cage, hits the splash, and even though how many, how many different people have done the splash off the cage since then, that's still the
0: one that everybody remembers. Oh, uh, I... The only other one that kind of comes close in my mind, actually kind of an odd one, but on SmackDown, I forget the year, this would have been... Um, after WrestleMania 20, uh, kind of towards the summer of that year, uh, there was a cage match on SmackDown between Eddie Guerrero and JBL. And Eddie hit the frog splash off the top of the cage. Okay, and that's yeah, yeah. the only thing that, that, first of all, for as much as it's been done, there's like, again, that's the only other one. Well, I remember that, and I kind of remember uh, the time Mick Foley did it to Triple H. Yeah, because that was, but,
1: the, that was a tribute to Snuka as well.
0: But yeah, but is the one that everyone still to this day remembers. You remember Jimmy Snooka jumping off of that cage.
1: Yeah. I remember Eddie did another time. I, I want to say he did another time. Remember the feud of Rey Mysterio? Was it? Oh, oh, it was oh 05. It was
0: the feud of Mysterio. Uh, the, the, uh, the summer of Rey Mysterio can always beat Eddie Guerrero.
1: Yeah, and finally Eddie gets the big win in the cage on SmackDown, which is kind of also bad backwards book. Because oh, wow. you have the face constantly winning, and the heel finally gets the win. And most of us were happy that he finally got the win. Well, the fact that, that he transitioned
0: from that to being the... Uh, his, if you want I mean, I was sad when Eddie passed, and for all kinds of reasons. If you want another one, just to kind of add, he died as he was building into a program with Batista, when Batista was on SmackDown and still actually cared about what he was doing. Yeah, and yeah. the re- interactions between Eddie and Batista were just, I mean, I thought they were gold. They had a great I match. Mean, it, it didn't uh, matter what did, happened. I think it was No
1: Mercy show where they had a
0: great match. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, he hit the frog splash. I can't remember if it was just off the turnbuckles or off to the cage. But, yeah, he... Uh, he could have wa- he had beat down Rey Mysterio. He was going to escape and decided, no, I want to pin him, which is – I actually like that as far as heel logic goes because that's – he has to get the monkey off of his back. So he could have walked out the door, comes back in, frog flashes, right. but yeah, but yeah, but uh, yeah, just to kind of you know, get back onto track here, but uh, Morocco was just so darn good at making you hate everything about him and – like at proper pairings. He had some really just really good stuff. Anywhere he went really. I mean he had some decent runs in other territories as well. And he just had this knack for making you wish him to suffer as much as humanly possible.
1: They did and they also they also even made him suffer by being in a sitcom with Mr. Fuji. <laughs> <laughs> Forgot about that. Fuji Vice, man. That is some classic stuff. I continue to wait for them to Upload that onto Debian.
0: Hey, uh, well, to the unpaid intern listening to this show who works for WWE, you had, that's your next task. Put that up on yeah, get, uh, the network. Get
1: some Fuji guys. Get all those Tuesday Night Titan shows. Those have a lot of uh, classic uh, moments. Classic for some of the right reasons and some classic for all the wrong reasons. Either way, that's the all awesome. Yes, definitely. So they need to get on that. But uh, that's another, another thing, I guess. Mr. Fuji. How about Mr. Fuji?
0: Golly, that guy. <laughs>
1: um, he, he was uh, he was not exactly beloved. Um, he was constantly voted the worst manager of the year by the Wrestling Observer because, you know, Fuji was your heel manager that couldn't really speak English very well.
0: So in that <laughs> way,
1: he wasn't very effective. He did have the cam. He liked to trip people. He, liked- he had the bowler hat he liked to wear. Yeah. He had the suit. Fuji was not very – I mean, he, he wasn't a great talker or nothing. He was good at establishing that uh, you shouldn't like him and you shouldn't like anybody associates with.
0: Him. Yeah, well, that and his uh, his run with Yokozuna was <laughs> it was interesting because, I mean, which is kind of the crazy thing because you have Yokozuna, who you don't want to talk, partially right. because he's not Japanese, so you don't want him to yeah, he's, speak he's in a moment. moment. You know, you know what,
1: that. Uh, I know where you're going with this. And, uh, yeah, you have Mr. Fugiu who can't speak very well. So they had to bring in Jim Cornette to be the spokesperson for
0: the group. Oh, uh, a, a greater clash of all things visual you could not have than Giant Yokozuna, Mr. Fuji wearing traditional Japanese clothing, and Jim Cornette,
1: yeah, looking it was,
0: like it was quite Stevie quite Wonder. He had some.
1: Uh, he had some great suits in that time period too. And some wonderful oh, colors. Who doesn't There's love red and red yellow? <laughs> Yeah, the, he liked his yellow pants during that time period. That's for sure. It was a interesting time for Jim Cornette, and uh, yeah, that's was, that was, uh, Fuji's only uh, champion, of course, was Yokozuna. He managed Demolition for two periods of time, and he uh, that that was another one of the great dumb manager moments. Was when he uh, when he turned against Demolition while they were taking champions and joined the power, with the powers of pain. One well, of just the worst managerial decisions of all time.
0: Ah, uh, you, you don't turn on you guys when they're champions.
1: <laughs> uh, and uh, I, if you if you're going to do it, you should do it during a match where you can make them not champions.
0: You did during the yeah. Survivor Series match. It's
1: pointless. I'm not sure they really wound up winning that match. To be honest with you.
0: Probably not. They didn't win a whole lot.
1: No, it turned out once Mister Fuji got hold of them. It was a bad. It was a bad time for everybody involved, and uh, also managed the the Berserker. Uh, the, the Huss man uh, uh, the Zerker was always a favorite in the Royal Rumble of course because his finisher was throwing guys over
0: the top grip <laughs> which he used liberally during the NWA days because it could get him disqualified But
1: yeah that wouldn't be a good idea but, uh, and uh, I think uh, I've run out Mr. Fuji's uh, clients was that all of them?
0: Uh, he might have had a few more here or there but those are the ones that I remember uh, those particular group of guys
1: yeah, Jimmy Hart we mentioned
0: a little bit earlier. And, uh, of course, we mentioned <sighs> the Hart Foundation.
1: Anybody with song. a
0: megaphone. Anybody yeah, with yeah. a megaphone. You're going to hate. Masu is not a fan.
1: Real is not a fan of
0: Yeah, uh, And, well, you take that and you add it to Jimmy Hart's voice.
1: <laughs> Which is annoying enough
0: as it is, yeah. You know, there were some guys who just have vocal qualities that make you want to strangle Kitten. And Jimmy Hart was one of those guys. And then he talked fast, and he was bouncing around. and he, I was shocked when his charges were baby faces, that people still didn't want to kill him. Well, that's why it's put
1: with Paul Kogan. <laughs> Paul Kogan is the one guy that can make people not want to kill Jimmy Hart.
0: Uh, and even that didn't work out so well in WCW, because people were just sick of Hogan at that.
1: Yeah, uh, the, that's sure. But uh, I mentioned Gorilla Mom there a second ago. And that reminds me of somebody else who we didn't mention up until this point who was a, uh, even though he wasn't in the ring for much, he still one of, the top, one of the top heel voices in WF for sure. A guy who established what the heels were thinking and doing at all the time
0: so respect for them. Of course, from the commentary group, Jesse, the body Ventura. Oh, God. He was, he remains, I think, the benchmark for a good heel comment. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that I mean, was that he, was... he
1: was. He told like it was.
0: He did. It didn't matter what it was. He told it like it was. The thing that I liked about him, it wasn't just that he would always kind of, you know, side with the heels and, oh, if he's not caught, it's not cheating. And, oh, the, the referee didn't see that. And he, his yearly promise to come out of retirement and take the title off of Hogan, which is always oh, yeah. good for a laugh. <laughs> yeah. But what killed me about what, – what always helped me with him was he, would, he, ended, he added this air of legitimacy to himself – when he, because every now and then he gave credit to the babyface. And it, it didn't happen often. It was um, infrequent, to say the least. But, I mean, the two instances that stick out to my mind as far as him just giving credit both come from WrestleMania 3, actually, uh, when calling the Savage Steamboat Match. And he said a couple of times, yeah, I'll give the dragon credit. He's survived where a lot of other guys would have given up by now. And that kind of went out the window after George Steele somewhat factored into the finish. And, oh, he cheated. He was there. He shouldn't have been there at ringside. He didn't know what he was going to do with that bell. What was he doing getting involved in the match that's going on? And we, which is just great because you know, anyone justifying a heel's actions are, is just awesome. <laughs> Anytime you have someone who can do it and sound like they mean it. But the other sure. one, uh, when he said, you know, I didn't believe Hogan could do it, but he did. Yeah, I mean that you know, went a little bit differently later because oh no, that was the opening one was a three count and you had Ventura factoring into how the rest of that played out. But God, yeah, he was as far as a heel commentator, he was uh, I think to this day the best.
1: Oh uh, yeah, definitely um, in his prime. Certainly, I think you could compare Bobby Heenan to him. Jerry Lawler in his prime was a really good heel commentator, that's kind of been forgotten over the past uh, what ten years or so of him doing nothing. But uh, in his prime,
0: Lawler was really good. Oh, but, wait. Uh, his stuff uh, sucking up to Mr. McMahon. was...
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, that his, was his, that was good first stuff. K-Man,
1: and we talked about Mr. McMahon is good, and somewhere around 2001 or two or whatever, it just kind of fell off from there. And he is what he is now. But uh, yeah, Ventura was the, he. He wasn't the first to do commentary, but he's the first he'll do it on such a major platform, and uh, he did, uh, like you said, better than just about anybody. Certainly anybody that I can think of for sure and uh definitely Jesse would give the 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 Fates his cred when they deserved it. And then sometimes he just get really mad, like after WrestleMania five where Hulk Hogan wins. He goes on this just this epic tirade against Hogan. <laughs> it's pretty great.
0: I have to imagine Gorilla Monsoon was just staring over at him in the booth Okay.
1: <laughs> and considering considering Hogan and Ventura's relationship at that point, how much of that was uh how much of that was a work?
0: Who knows? Well, you know, even the best work <laughs> contains a of
1: truth.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he, he had a great
1: platform too. Oh, <laughs> yeah, then, uh, yeah course, he was great. Him and Tony Schiavone were underrated as a
0: pairing, I thought. And uh, that looked some great quotes. Yes, I mean, uh, yeah. it's so sad that we have negative memories of Schiavone because of how browbeaten the guy got towards the end of WCW. Yeah,
1: but when but Schiavone was
0: on, he was good.
1: Yeah, him and Jesse had some great chemistry. Better than, better, better than Jesse and Jim Ross did, they you. I thought that Jesse yeah. got better once Tony got introduced in the mix. Like, uh, Jim Ross just wasn't having any of Jesse's uh, sticks for whatever reason at that point. Maybe JR was upset with things behind the scenes or whatever. But, uh, yeah, Tony definitely played along with it more. He would uh, set Jesse up to just have Jesse go off on his uh, rants and tirades and whatnot. And uh, it was definitely a definitely good pairing. I, I mean, you still take, you probably still take Corolla over Tony, certainly. But, uh, you know, good times.
0: Yeah, they they had some fun. I imagine Jr. just didn't know how to deal with. Uh, might not have been as familiar with how to deal with the guy who does shtick most of the time. Then he got yeah. Once he dealt with Waller, it out. that's all Waller does is shtick.
1: Yeah, well, once he got paired Waller, he did finally figured it out. But at that time, he wasn't really used to it. Although he should have been because yeah, I know he, he he came with Cornette before. And Cornette yeah. was a heel for part of that, and I don't know. I think maybe Jr. just didn't
0: like him. That's a possibility. And uh, you know. Crazier things have happened than that one human being not especially liking another human being. <laughs> yeah, and it's
1: affecting the work sometimes. Uh, you know, it, it could happen. It's a possibility.
0: You yeah, know, who would have thought? All right, I think that's everyone I wanted to cover on this particular stretch of time. Uh, again, unless and I, unless you have someone else that just like your light bulb moment goes. Oh wait, we have to talk about so and so. Yeah. If um, you don't, sorry, go ahead.
1: Um. I'm not even sure if this this guy was around for part of time in If He did have a brief run with with Hulk Hogan. Uh, uh, the Gun Giant Kamala.
0: Ah, Kamala. What is it about? He had a
1: run in a couple different places.
0: Kamala had a he had a pretty you know yeah more than one place. He had a couple of decent runs.
1: Memphis. Well,
0: and what now, was it uh, in uh... World class. Yeah. Well, here's my question. I mean, he was billed as. I mean, he was kind of more of the monster heel mold. Everywhere except WWF at the time wasn't he? I mean, and then they had something different with. The, I, could I, yeah, I just seem to recall them portraying him a little more comedically, and that might just be my memory being faulty.
1: Well, later on, um, when they first brought him in, they had him do the feud with Hogan, and they did some uh, they did some house show runs, and those did pretty well. Uh, for they just did pretty well with Hogan Kamala, and later on they did make him more comedic, especially when they brought him back and then they the had with oh, yeah. Harvey Whippleman, and and then he was with Slick, and he. Uh, became a man and became a good guy whatever. He did become comic later on. But uh, certainly back in the mid-'80s, uh, Kamala was pretty much a monster wherever he went, whether it was Memphis restart or road class or mid-south or, you know, in the U.S. time. What time. So is it about those savage, savage, savage guys and,
0: that works so well yeah, as, as, as an archetype? Uh, yeah. I'm, are, we, we, we saw. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Those are good deals to have, the big, the big savage guys that don't talk. And I'm not sure you see enough of those in this day and age. I mean, even Rusev talked on Monday for God's
0: sake. Well, Rusev's... I don't mind that Rusev does because he's done it in promos before. I mean, some of the hype packages featured him speaking. So it's not that he can't speak. It's that he chooses not to most of the time. But, I mean, even a few years ago, we saw that with Umaga. And he got over
1: pretty pretty big. He got over a lot bigger than I think uh, most people expect him to.
0: I mean, you don't think that, you know, in the early 2000s, mid to late 2000s, you could have a savage from the Isle of Samoa who doesn't speak and just screams a lot. And that it would work. But you wouldn't think so. But it did. And I mean Sometimes part of that, could, that just works. <laughs> you, you know, you don't have to overthink some things. I think that we yes. as a society accept that there are places in the world where we could where you could go and find a person like Umaga who doesn't speak and is more than a little willing to just try and kill you,
1: and somebody like Umaga, who's a uh, like a uh, Kamala, who's a Ugandan savage, and might just eat you because that's just kind of how things work from time to time. But uh, yeah, uh, so I was thinking about Kamala, and then Africa pops in my mind, and of course uh, I, I, I got to give a little bit of love to uh, the Slicksters combination, the Twin Towers, the Big Boss Man. Boss Man had a pretty good series of of house shows with Hulk Hogan. He had a pretty darn good cage match on Saturday Night's nice Man events. Uh Bossman no big owned as a face in up for sure. I mean he was a face for most of the time in W. But uh certainly in the late eighties when he first came in, he was uh he was a uh, pretty darn good uh, heel. Of course Big Bubba Big Bob Rogers and then WA but uh Ray Trailer, one of those guys who uh he could he could go for a guy his size. He had uh, he had a good personality and whatnot. Probably gets a little bit overlooked because you know we, we do tend to have a bias against the bigger guys from time to time. But uh, I to, uh, he was definitely good in his role. And then you had the uh, Ask and Dream Akeem, which was
0: uh, just <laughs> interesting
1: to say the least. One Man Gang.
0: Yeah. Now the where gang was he from? Legit though.
1: He was from the. He was from deep dark Africa.
0: <laughs> no, when he was actually like legitimately, where was he from?
1: Oh, the One Man Gang was. Uh, he was built from Chicago. I, said, and I
0: wouldn't be surprised if he was attacked from Chicago. Yeah, that's probably about right. So, but let's take a big, uh, a very large, somewhat overweight white guy and pill him from Africa. Yeah, Especially I'm not deepest, really sure darkest the Africa.
1: That's what sure the thought I mean,
0: process was behind that one. I mean, you could go with South Africa and maybe get away with it. But no, deepest, darkest Africa. But deepest, darkest you hang Africa. Hang on a
1: slickster.
0: Oh, man.
1: And they, actually, and they got to run with Hogan and Savage for a brief period of time. Yeah. Which is believable because
0: they're pretty big huh? dudes. Both big guys, and like you said, Bossman could actually work. I mean, I, I agree with you. He tends to get overlooked when people look back on that time frame, but you know, he was usually he was in good shape. I mean, I think part of the other reason we kind of overlook him is uh, he came up, uh, rose to prominence during the time when gimmicks were more important. Oh, excuse me, yeah. when you. Know, when getting your gimmick over was more important than overall match quality, but like you said, his stuff with Hogan was really good. I mean, we're not talking, you know, elite upper echelon level, but that was that was some real. There was some really good stuff that they did. I yeah, mean, that, yeah, uh, no that doubt, cage match it. has a superplex off the top of the cage or something like that, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. No, it's not. Bossman was that uh, shape. Bossman was it was
1: heavier. his heavier days during that time period. He got really skinny later on when he became a good guy. It's, yeah, kinda yeah, weird, was, cause uh, weird, it's weird when you're watching... When you watch the old pay-per-views, you're kind of going through them and whatnot. Like, Bossman's really fed there for a while, Now then he gets really skinny. Kind of weird.
0: Yeah, I mean, his, uh, the la- his last run uh, with WWF, uh, he was really... I mean, you wouldn't necessarily put those two guys next to each other, and if you didn't have the facial uh, similarities, you wouldn't necessarily think they were the same guy. He lost a fair amount of weight there.
1: Yeah, uh, that he did. And... Uh, Boss, man, and when he was a heel, he was definitely a heel. He was not one of those guys uh, trying to be popular. He would, uh, he would stretch limits a little bit. He would be that uh, evil prison guard that beat people up in his stick for no good reason.
0: Oh, yeah, and, and that, that's a, such a classic cinematic trope. I mean, even in the 80s, we all knew that in movies you had the sadistic prison guard or the redneck cop who abuses his authority, and he played yeah. that so very well.
1: That he did. That he did. But, uh... Yeah, and I think that's that's all the major people I want to say. I want to talk about. I mean, I'm not going to delve into Dino Bravo.
0: Nah, we don't. Need, I don't think unless anybody. Unless you're a big Dino fan. Uh, earthquake,
1: eh. uh, earthquake was underrated.
0: Uh, earthquake and I thought both of the natural disasters were pretty good.
1: Sure. Uh, well, typhoon, um, typhoon had his moments. Uh, later on, there was the unfortunate incident where he became a shockmaster. Yeah. Hell, <laughs> <laughs> one wasn't too good, but. Uh, I mean, Earthquake got to the point Earthquake got himself over enough to be a viable Hulk Hogan opponent in 1990, which is always a good thing to be. And uh, Natural Disasters were a pretty badass tag team. You could throw them against guys like the Legion of Doom, and you'd be kind of wondering if the Legion of Doom could beat them. That's like one of the big knocks from the Road Warriors was you couldn't really, really feel sorry for them because, like, you know, they can't be hurt. But against Natural Disasters, you kind of think, okay this this is the match right
0: here, yeah, they're not squashing the little guys this these are you know what are we going to get out of this and yeah I, I i agree with you. earthquake had the ability I mean when he crushed Hogan's ribs, yeah. you legitimately won you, you wondered, wait a did he wait a minute, wait, you may have just killed Hulk Hogan, my good friend, the Voodoo penguin,
1: sent Hulk Hogan to get will card
0: you know, had I been a big fan about that time, I probably would have too i mean it and it was that believable, I mean. Yeah, you know, and Earthquake looked the part, Hogan sold it well. I mean he was just uh, he was just like making a movie at that time period, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, ah. um I think it might have been suburban. Zeus ah. <laughs> that, that whole part.
0: Oh, that movie.
1: Oh, yeah, and and Zeus. Oh. That was a <laughs> Zeus was a bad idea.
0: Just a little bit. I to think a suburban yeah. commando. I don't think they played uh, comedic fun as you could have had between him and Christopher Lloyd. Oh,
1: probably not. It's been a it's been a while since I uh, watched that one. I'll see.
0: That. The Undertaker's in that too, if memory serves.
1: I he had some kind of a, a bit part or something. I say and, oh yeah, no, he was one
0: of the uh, one of the two intergalactic bounty hunters who never spoke, and then he did at the end, and like a little kid's voice comes out. Yeah. Oh, okay. And the big fun. payoff is Hogan looking at him going, oh, so that's why you guys never spoke. Brother. <laughs> All right. Uh, Steve, it's been a, a lot of fun having you on here. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Oh, no problem. It's been a good time. I like to spread out my podcasting wings a little bit here. Up here, over here on the, is it, the Rodlich Broadcasting
0: Network thing? Yep. Well, you're, you're a yeah, mainstay of the Zonka Podcasting Network.
1: That's right. That's right. And, uh, I've we've I've talked with Mark before and since I've not talked with you before, so it's been a good time. And uh, of course, you'll be you're going through all the uh, wrestling bad guys, is that right?
0: That's my goal. Cool, cool. Be, so I may ask time. you back. Here's a disclaimer: you've been on here once. I may ask you back in the future.
1: Okay. Well, if, if the schedule works out, we'll see how we'll see how things go. Unfortunately, me and Larry keep having our schedules not work out, which is kind of a shame because. No, that's it. Larry's kind of busy because, you know, he runs the Internet, pretty much. Like, <laughs> he's the of king it. of the – he's like the king. He's a he's king of stuff, and he's a very busy man. So it's tough for us to get together. But uh, I do a weekly podcast with Jeremy Lambert. Called, it's called "Crowd Goes Wilder, and uh, wrestling, and basically whatever's on our minds. So we do that. And, of course, over at com. me and Trent Howell, the Voodoo Penguin, we do the air show once uh, every couple weeks, and that is also a good time. And uh, that's pretty much all I have to plug. I did the 411 Wrestling Hot 100 a couple of weeks ago, so I don't have to do another article for
0: another year. It's pretty excited. <laughs> it's a good gig. Watch yeah, all the women uh, wrestling, uh, pick out pictures, rank them.
1: That, that's all I can handle right now, man. <laughs> that's all I need to handle for for God's sake. So, uh, yeah, good times. Uh, I'm glad you had me on.
0: Yeah, I'm glad. And you show up once a year, you get the most clicks on the Internet for a couple of weeks.
1: It ain't a bad gig, I, I will say that. It's a lot better than, you know, like, watching shows and talking about them.
0: Yeah, I, I imagine it would be, especially some of the shows that have come out recently.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did the Raw tirade for a little bit, and then I, it was okay heading to WrestleMania. And since WrestleMania's, kind of gone downhill. I, I asked Clary not to write about it. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, again, uh, you're welcome back and just as a point of reference, I do take requests. I have my schedule kind of thought out, but if there's any uh, if there's ever a, you know, a topic, a specific individual that you would like to come on and talk about, uh, just hit me up and I'd be more than happy to have you back.
1: All right, we'll do. Thank you very much.
0: All right, thank you. As for my plugs, I'll go ahead and get these out of the way and then we can then we'll just uh hit the final soundbite here. Uh, my weekly column, Locked in the Guillotine, is up in the MMA section of 411mania.com. This week, I'm looking at the good things that have come out of the UFC's policy of expansion, diversification of revenue, uh, accessibility of the product, and all that fun stuff to kind of complement my point last week about how dare they run 43 shows a year. So the other side of the coin this And I host the weekly 411 Ground and Pound radio show every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern. This week we'll have a double review and a preview. We'll be reviewing UFC Fight Night 45, Miller versus Cerrone. Uh, you can read the report in for, at 411mania.com. Larry Zonka covered it. So naturally we got a night of awesome fights. If you, want a night that, uh, if you want a day that will not have awesome fights, this Saturday, UFC Fight Night 46, only available on Fight Pass, uh, McGregor versus Brandow, live from Dublin at 10.30 in the morning where I live. Uh, I'll be covering it. So the night, <laughs> the night of fights is going to suck. I have my voodoo curse; it's looming over my head. So I'll have your live coverage for that. If you don't have Fight Pass, or you just—I assume—you don't want to bother finding someone who has a stream of their Fight Pass account. However, you come across that, uh, I'll have your coverage there. We'll be reviewing both of those this Sunday, and we will be previewing UFC on Fox 12. Headlined by ruthless Robbie Lawler fighting Matt the Immortal Brown for a UFC welterweight title shot. Assuming Johnny Hendricks ever repairs his Glavin. Uh, be sure to check out all the great shows here on the Radlich and Broadcasting Network. Uh, every other Wednesday, Jason Teasley is from the Cheap Seats. Uh, sports cast himself, Jesse Starcher, Robert Cooper. A lot of fun if you're big into sports. Uh, the Metal Hammer of Doom Every other Thursday uh, Their last episode looked at Wasn't Body Count oh, Wait, I think it was in their upcoming one Or their last one was Steel Panther I can't remember I re- I wish I could, I should But every other Thursday You get the Metal Hammer of Doom Mark Radlitz, Robert Cooper the Thursdays that you don't have the Metal Hammer of Doom, you have The Long Road to Ruin, which uh, the upcoming episode is going to feature Mark, Sh- Mark Radlich and Sean Comer talking about Batman the Animated Series, the first season. Uh, you can follow The Long Road to Ruin. They have a Facebook page, so like them there. Say nice things, say mean things. Uh, we're all available on Stitcher and iTunes, so subscribe. We appreciate it. Rate us five stars or whatever you think we're worth. Preferably more than one. That's all I ask. My ego is fragile. And we appreciate all the comments and criticisms that you give us. We try to improve. We understand you have hundreds of thousands, if not potentially millions of these podcasts to choose from, and you choose ours. So thank you very much for that. And don't be afraid to tell a friend. If you know people who you think would like our product, we appreciate you letting them know about it. We're trying to grow something here. Because one of these days I want to be able to read copy and get paid for it and not just show things I enjoy. All right, that's going to wrap us up here. So for Steve Cook, 411 Luminary and longtime collaborator in the Zonka Podcasting Network, I'm Robert Winfrey, reminding you that if you don't have a decent bad guy, your hero is just a weirdo in tights.
1: So say goodnight to the bad
0: guy.